0: Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and here with me in the room is Dr Neil Fox. I thought it's end of year, so I'll give you the full title. I appreciate that. Uh, Nice Christmas gesture. Hello,
1: Dario. Hello, listeners. It's lovely to be in Dario's swank North London pad. I know. Um, I'm I'm champagne socialist central here, I'm afraid to say. It's lovely. Um, Yeah, it's really nice. surrounded by books and art. It's how it should be. Even a Christmas tree with the film... Baubles. Indeed, yeah. I'm sat next to High Life and Ad Astra. Yes, more of those feels, to come. Feels very apt, yes, for the episode that we're
0: recording today. Indeed. So this is our end-of-year review, which we've done since the beginning of the podcast. But we try not to do it in the vein of rankings rather just sort of focusing on our highlights of the year and films that we kind of want to talk about, films that maybe, you know, maybe people have seen, but but some that maybe we want to remind people of. And particularly since this year, we read the article by Elena Gorfinkel on against lists. And I think it's interesting because we've had a conversation before about you're a big lists guy and the philosophy behind why you use lists and why you think they're useful and important is I think the way that you make that argument is very absolutely valid. And I'm kind of more anti-lists. And I think that that article sort of encapsulated a lot of the reasons why I'm, I tend to not be one who focuses on, on lists. So I, I, I was interested that you read it and you liked it and you retweeted it because I, I thought to myself when that came out, oh, I wonder what Neil thinks about that, you know? Well, I think that one of the things I'm realising is that I like...
1: I like making lists, but I'm less interested in the ranking of them. You know, I, I find, yeah, the, the processing of lists and kind of collecting of of stuff particularly useful for myself. But this idea of what's at the top yeah. and how to actually kind of differentiate just seems more and more kind of meaningless. Yeah. And that's much more to do with the conversation that's going on, you know, and what I found is that The the conversation centering around the same films over and over again, and a lot of those appear in our list. Yeah, you know, and I just thought, well, two things. One is if I was to kind of think about it, I might end up with the same list as you, and then we're narrowing the field of films to talk about. Yeah, which I think there's a lot of really, really great films that probably won't be on the list necessarily, it will be lower down. So, trying to kind of have a really broad spread, um, and also kind of thinking about. Just yeah, just the act of, of of how to how to rank that stuff and
0: uh, and the idea that one is but you know this one's at two and that one's at four and you're wrong because that one should be at one yeah. or whatever you know and I find what, that yeah. problematic you know
1: yeah and also what was interesting this year was that I didn't have a clear favourite I think in the last couple of years we had the same favourite film yeah. ones, at least over the last few years and last year we both had a film that was clearly our most favourite thing we'd seen that year jointly and I think that's still the case and when I did my albums as well um, recorded all the you know the records it was the same there was one album that was clearly I'd listened to it the most and it meant the most to me but everything else was just a field of these are things I really really liked and Mm. also I thought it's an opportunity to engage with how you talk about things when you're not thinking numerically you know Mm. and try to find a vocabulary for talking about things and, and finding meaning in that rather than being like well you'll know this i think this is better because i put it in number 2 yeah so that's been yeah just again a kind of chance to reframe and not get drawn into the same kind of conversation about the same three or four films that everyone's talking about
0: yeah absolutely and and also i think that my ranking would change daily i think with this 5 because we're going to do a kind of five favourites each. Um, so, you know, we're going to talk about ten films in depth and we're going to discuss various other films that we think are worth worth mm. mentioning that may may sort of relate to other areas of film culture this year in, in 2019. But, yeah, I didn't really want to say this film is, is better than that film because I actually think I like them all for... Different, yes. similar reasons, but not above each other. Like, you know, there's some that I watched at the beginning of the year and I didn't want to forget. Yeah. And the others I've watched very recently and I was kind of like, oh, wow, this is just sort of the immediacy bias of that has had a big impact on me very recently. Which is great, isn't it? And that's the, the beauty of doing the pod is the
1: ability to be able to talk about those things uh, in that way, rather than just being like, here's our list, here's our countdown, yeah, yeah. Um, which a lot of people are doing, which is fine and valid for them, but not for us.
0: Mm. I just wondered before we get into that then, have you got any podcast highlights or, you know, over the last year or, or any discussions or any of the interviews that you've done that kind of stick out for you or you think, oh yeah, you know, just generally the progression of the podcast itself, how, how, how have you thought about that this year
1: throwing that on me there.
0: Sorry, uh, do you want me to
1: go first on that no, no, I can no, tell no, you fine. a few things? No, I think to- I know I'm gonna do that great podcast thing. I kind of think on my feet, okay, and, uh, yes. and wing it. Yeah, uh, this feels like a, a really significant kind of calendar year for the podcast, and in ways that are, yeah, kind of, I, I guess, the thing I'm proudest of this, most this year and most kind of pleased with is the, the the evolution of the podcast into spaces that are really exciting I think for us and a kind of a culmination of things we've wanted to do and been interested in in a variety of different ways so I think that the Berlin Ali episodes were were great just because it was both being in an immediate film cultural moment you know as, as it's kind of the big festivals are but also not engaging with it in that here's our hot take on the big films, you know, mm. I think. And, and being able to use the the podcast as a way of just talking about films that we want to talk about and see and being able to experience as participants of the festival, but not necessarily in a, I need to get this review filed and we need to talk about this film now because it's the big film. That was really exciting. And uh, the the episodes with the BFI so far have been really rewarding because I think it gives us a different type of, brief really you know knowing that there's a regular stream of big mainstream episodes to tie around and trying to be interesting with what we do there i think is really exciting those are two and that regular kind of stream of where we'll be doing these kinds of episodes which has moved it away from the screening episode which i think is is fine and good because we're moving towards something specific you know mm. i've never we want one to do like well you know let's kind of just throw that away and I still love those episodes Um, but it's felt like a natural progression for the podcast this year and also just the ability to listen to the podcast as a listener much more in terms of our relationship in terms of the way we do the podcast has kind of evolved and I've enjoyed listening to your work on the podcast Um, because obviously because of the the way the labour is and because of the way these episodes are much more labours (laughs) rather than you know before it was we'll watch a film and we'll record it, but the tendency of the audio gets dropped in and then we just do our bit. Yeah. Whereas a lot of these episodes we're doing now, there's much more individual labour that yeah. goes into it. So then it, the ability to approach it and listen to your interviews. Um, I just listened to the film stock ones. Mm. That was a great collection of interviews, like really, really good interviews. And it's nice to be able to just listen as a listener and go, wow, this is, I think this is really good content that we're putting out. And I, I don't hear this content anywhere else, mm. you know. Um, so it's, that's really encouraging that it's a reminder yeah actually what we do is is different
0: yeah I echo all of that I mean to me it's it's been really good in Berlin at Film Philosophy Conference yeah at London at Luton I've encountered people who've said oh I listen to the podcast all the time and it's great and and people I kind of respect are all saying things like I don't kind of listen to it in transit or on the background. I literally sit down and sometimes I have to stop because I need to focus and stuff like that. That really encourages me because it means that it's doing what it's meant to do, I think. And I'm really happy that we do have a, an audience and it's the audience that we want. And I'm ca- kind of reconciled, not it's reconciled is the wrong word. I'm I'm, very happy that we are in a, the space that we're in rather than we're not changing it because we want to Become more mainstream, or or try to get to, to reach as wider audience as we want. I think that we we want to bring people in to to experience the podcast in the way that, that it's intended, yeah. and I think that that's really useful. On having those that element of it. In fact, there were sort of three elements that I'd, I'd sort of written down in note form here. Yeah, that 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 was the the first one is sort of encountering the the, the audience in a in a real space and getting to be able to uh, talk about the podcast and then things that that had come up on the po- podcast and then again it relates a little bit to what you're saying that the development of the recording, editing, creativity element of the podcast. I think that's some that's the thing that I want to get more and more into. We've got the voice episode coming up in the new year, which is going to be the next one, which I'm gonna which is going to be more essayistic, I, I suppose. And as you know, I've been sort of writing this piece for Film Philosophy for a while now. In fact, you know, that's one thing I've got to get finished over Christmas. And it's about that, this notion of the audio cinematic. Can audio only, no visual Im- images be conceived of as a cinematic experience? And trying to sort of think about, if that is possible, what that sounds like and what you have to do to to do that. And, you know, the work on the kind of creative side of the podcast, I think, is really is really evidence of that and then you know it's interesting because you mentioned the live podcast there i really do want to make sure that we're not we don't leave that behind yeah. entirely because i think like i really enjoyed the uh the lobster and i really enjoyed at the beginning of the year doing the her episode of the children of men episode and sort of going into environments mm. um whether it's at universities or whether it's outside and i think there is an opportunity and i've got you know, I have a couple of contacts with people in London that went. Maybe we might be able to put something together. It's sort of on a monthly basis, where we become more of a regular staple, serial, um, screening event at, at a venue that yeah. then we can go to and see where see if that takes us somewhere somewhere new. So yeah, it's great that the um, that we we continue to build, but we continue to be flexible and sort of move out in different directions. So that's always uh, yeah, really really useful. I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. Any particular directions that you got in mind other than kind of like, you know, you've got the voice episode coming, but where do you see the podcast going? Any Or just, just kind of...
0: Yeah, I, th- I think maybe looking at particular thematics and trying to bring together, say, the research element of an approach to a particular film theme and the films that are focused on within that particular theme, but then... Recreating that somehow in an audio format that you can combine text, you can combine speech, and you're combining sound, and music, and sound design in a way that, that that kind of touches on that idea of 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 cinema as a kind of discursive conversation cool. that that triggers people's kind of imagination in terms of they they can imagine the the film, they know the film watching process or their relationship to a particular film or theme, but then. There is a again. I'm going to use the word discourse, but but a productive conversation of knowledge that that takes that somewhere else. That's beyond reviewing. That's beyond yes, I like that or I don't like that. You know, and, and I suppose it relates to the idea of what is what is valuable. What's the point mm. of yeah, yeah. of anything at the moment? And you know, to sort of, we had a, a kind of discussion on one of the previous episodes about reframing the process when it comes to the relationship to to content through social media and and the last three years of being sort of obsessed with the politics all amount and then it all amounting to nothing and as we said in previous episodes we do need the social media it's it's absolutely vital to podcasting as a as the distribution and marketing and sharing mechanism but it's how that goes forward both in a podcasting sense but also for me as a as a sort of creative person, an academic person, and how can I use it to the best of, it, of its ability and not fall down the, the, the usual traps, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I think that, you know, I think a lot of that, what you're saying there, hopefully will will be recognisable for listeners in terms of how the podcast has, has evolved already, Yeah. you yeah, know, yeah. in terms of our our commitment to reflection and yeah. kind of not, yeah, not not resting on our laurels and not just saying, oh, this is what it is, you know, always kind of trying to, trying to figure out what it is, uh, yeah. which is the benefit of being involved in podcasting now because it's still so undecided. Mm. But also kind of, yeah, just that that's what's interesting a lot of the time is is what can it be, you know? And I think if you'd have said sort of 18 months ago, well, you'll do all these things and you'll do episodes like this, mm. might not necessarily have seen that coming, but that responsiveness to those opportunities and, and a lot of it is from being plugged in online and, and having, you know, that kind of, access to material and the conversation constantly flowing so yeah it is a it's not as easy as just stepping away and saying oh, i don't we don't need it because i think we do um, but yeah the management of that relationship is is key mm.
0: so should we talk about some films let's do it that's why we're here okay we've got a list of films that we are both interested in talking about um because we've both seen them but they're not quite sort of at the you know if they were going to be on a list they they maybe wouldn't be in that sort of top 5 maybe even top 10 bracket I don't know I don't know um I think some of my, I think some of these would be would be in your yeah so, so which one on that list would as just not quite You have to think very carefully about whether that would be like on at on, on a top 5 or right at the top of a yeah this is this is the best film I saw this year well that's tricky with the with these films so
1: because I stopped thinking about that About a month ago, all of these films were in the conversation, and I haven't really had that internal. I guess the one that kind of sticks out, simply because I've, and it's been at the top of my experiences all year, is Amazing Grace. Right. But it doesn't feel like a new film, so it's really weird. Yeah. But it was, it has not been seen before, it's not been available before. It was one of the most extraordinary Kind of cinematic experiences of my life, let alone this year. So this is the Aretha Franklin documentary from yeah. the found footage, directed by Sydney Pollack, yes, who famously yeah shot this performance of Aretha kind of going back to her gospel roots and uh, in a kind of tiny church in Los Angeles, and then uh, didn't didn't sync the sound at the at the time, and for decades it was unable to actually sync it. So all this material that was shot was just unable to be used, um, it did, the, the, the audio formed the basis of the album Amazing Grace, which is still the, the biggest selling gospel album of all time, and it's an extraordinary record, but until now none of it had been able to be seen. So this is, yeah, this is the, the, the reconstruction of all that stuff, um, and I saw it at Berlin, and it's just, yeah, one of the best music films ever made, you know, I say that without hyperbole, it genuinely is just one of the most extraordinary films. And it's such a powerful document of one of those really, really top echelon, top five all-time artists, you know, just a kind of a breed apart. We talked a little bit about on The Lobster, you know, you sort of talk about that kind of awe of someone who's able to do something at that level, which is just this kind of supreme command of an instrument um, Mm -hmm. or an art form. And her command of her instrument in that film and watching her command her voice is just spellbinding. Absolutely, still ranks as just, yeah, kind of get goosebumps thinking about it. I think when it was released in the summer, I saw a trailer for it. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe in front of, I can't remember, you know, the sisters' brothers. I just kind of had goosebumps and kind of lump in my throat just from the the trailer of the reminder of what that film
0: contains. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. No, I mean, when I I heard you talking about it, I I was kind of not sceptical that, because I was absolutely certain you were, you know you had that that experience but skeptical whether I would be like so mesmerized in that way but you, you're actually you are watching and you are thinking how does she do that how does somebody do that that's just that's just kind of incredible yeah. and I remember I mean you know if anybody I think it's on the second Berlinale. your your kind of breakdown of it yeah. was just absolutely brilliant to listen to so I, I encourage anybody who wants to who liked that film and wants to hear you know for me the definitive uh, encapsulation of what that meant as a as a as a piece of filmmaking and a piece of kind of music and filmmaking coming together i think listening listening to your commentary on that analysis of that is is great yeah so yeah. um i think interestingly you know in a, in a very different kind of way the two films that 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 sort of spoke to me in in, in ways that relate back to stuff that I've done before, um, you know, academically, and the kinds of yeah. films that I grew up on were probably Ad Astra and Apollo Eleven. Yeah. I mean, I know you obviously you've seen Ad Astra and uh, have you, you haven't seen, Apollo, I haven't 11, seen but, Apollo 11. So there was a lot of space films out, you know what I mean, because of the, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo Eleven moon landing. And it really, I mean, you know, I if if I had the space and time, which I should make anyway, you can't just say that. I would write something as a follow-up to, because that was what my PhD was about, clearly representation of masculinity within the, the the space race context and how that fits into broader cultural and social and economic representations of gender and that kind of stuff. Um, but I really, really liked Alastra, despite the fact I could see flaws in it, there were you know, there, there's certain parts of it that were definitely a what looked like a kind of like commercial decision that we need to kind of spice this up a bit with a you know a moon landing chase and that kind of thing and then there was one moment that that sort of took me out of it towards the end completely but i think you know I, as somebody who's trying to do a sort of 2001 for, for in 2019 with all of the baggage that blockbuster movies have these days it, you know it was a really amazing amazing immersive brilliant piece of audacious filmmaking that does do that. This is massive spectacle, but this is also, you know, hugely psychological. And we're going to, you know, we're going to take our time and, and delve into the the psychology of a character and weaving in kind of the ideas of, of space as the metaphor of, of loss and alienation and distancing and, and all of that. Major,
1: what can you tell us
0: about the Lima project?
1: First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir. Some 29 years ago. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission and uh, no data was ever recovered. Deep space missions
0: were halted after that. Well, Roy, we have something that might come as quite a shock to you. We believe your father is still alive near Neptune my father's alive sir we believe so James Grey it's my favourite film of his because I'm, I'm, I know you, you've been a fan of his earlier work but I do I always have this thing of the relationship between the blockbuster element the, the size element of his films and what they're actually doing as—as as, in terms of the thematics and the depth of them but then Apollo 11 is just an amazing sort of regeneration of those images that I've seen so many times in so many different contexts I was just Sort of re-blown away by the idea of, very idea of sort of human beings being out in in space and what that sort of what that sort of represents and going to a, you know I think I saw the screen on the green really beautifully projected and it was just like amazing to look at.
1: Yeah, and I think that's something that I haven't seen Apollo Eleven. Obviously, that's the documentary, but I think that one of the things that felt so powerful about Ad Astra was how it conveyed that engagement with that with the space of space. Um, and particularly through Brad Pitt's performance, which I just think is extraordinary. I agree with everything you're saying there about about James Gray, and I think what was what allowed me to kind of forgive a lot of that those kind of commercial decisions was this was the knowledge that from the opening sequence, which I think is incredible, you know, where Brad Pitt's out on the, this kind of the satellite tower thing, um, and the storm kind of comes in, the electrical storm, was finally working at a level that kind of felt appropriate for the kind of stories he wanted to tell. And I like the immigrant a lot and I like lost city of Z a lot, mm. but they're clearly films that don't have the, the budgetary support to tell the story in the, in quite the right way. And you can see a lot of the scenes where he's really reaching for something which he just isn't there. Whereas here he's got that canvas in a different way and it felt really exciting to see him operating, like you say at that level Um yeah the, the 2001 is a kind of poison chalice in, it is yeah, yeah, in the sense that as much as it you know it's a singular piece of work it was also made under conditions where the, the director had complete control and that's just that's never going to happen again and Absolutely. Re, again with gravi- you know it reminded me a lot of gravity when I was watching it like oh I can see I can see a studio saying this is an 80 million dollar movie yeah 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 you know like yeah. sex it up a gravity, bit you know have a window for- and I think that I just I just think you have to be forgiving of those things yeah, of because you. otherwise you don't see the the yeah. two hours Absolutely. you know and I think yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's where we are and that's not ideal but that's would I rather have that than no no film Absolutely life. right. Absolutely it's no no argument for me and I just yeah there's so much kind of really powerful beautiful kind of contemplation in that movie at that scale which was really yeah, really
0: tremendous. Movie. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the, the, the clearer comparison is between, say, something like Interstellar yeah. or The Martian. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, again, without getting into rankings, it's a more satisfying film, I think. For me, definitely. Yeah, yeah than, than both, both of those. those. Yeah. yeah, without a doubt. Yeah.
1: Because I prefer James Gray's approach as a filmmaker to Nolan's in terms mm-hmm. of how he's trying to tell those stories. You know? Yeah. Um, and those interventions from external sources are, are so obvious a lot of the time um, that you just kind of say, okay, this is... You know, one for the, almost the one for the one for the the money man in the in the same film. Yeah.
0: So maybe we could talk about um, well, this again. Maybe this is a crass way of doing it, but the, there's three films this year. I think that generally, if you're going to put them into broad category, you could say that are about the black experience, that maybe are again. This is really sort of reductive, but kind of post Moonlight films in a way. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they are If Beale Street Could Talk which is the most obvious one and Madeline's Madeline which I know you really loved and then of course um, which is slightly sort of different you know, on a slightly different strand I would say which is Hale County This Morning This Evening which that was the one for me that was as close to being kind of right at the very top it was doing something kind of so generically flexible and honest with the use of kind of documentary aesthetics and that was both observational and uh, autobiographical at the same time and did something with a genre like the 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 sports doc which is something I'm very interested in that's something I want to do next season for sure because I've talked about it for this season but we never got around to it but that that was a real revelation that film to me
1: yeah same I think it's it's interesting you sort of posit a kind of post-moonlight era because I think that Yeah, that film definitely opened a significant number of doors and showed people a certain approach um, that was possible Um, and also, I think, made it so that any films made by people were given a kind of greater greater focus, which is great. And uh, Hale County definitely feels like a post-moonlight film in a kind of positive sense. This year through movie, I got into the work of Kevin Jerome Emerson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw know. a couple of those. Yeah, and yeah. it felt very much in that vein, but, yeah. but with with a more poetic, subjective kind of you know kind of atmosphere and tone that felt you know so so sort of it's, I I always sort of saw it situated between those two schools, the yeah. kind of the Jenkins and the the Emerson, which is very reductive. I don't mean just those, yeah, 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 but yeah. but that's the kind of world it felt like it was operating, and it was a really yeah a really mesmerizing experience where you're really asked to spend time with both the subjects and the filmmaker in a really, really interesting way that, yeah, felt new. Mm. It definitely felt new. And
0: not just because of the subjects, you know, but but certainly... Well, the subject isn't new, is it? You know what I mean? But the the approach to it, I think, was, was sort of building on... In a similar to a film that we'll talk about later on, it built its use of the genre... Um, mechanics let's say from the inside out out, rather than the outside in so it wasn't sort of saying oh look at this film look at you know as a a typical example tarantino does it from the outside in all of these influences feed into his whereas this sort of felt like it emerged from within the filmmaking oh there's a sort of echo of that and you know there's an allusion to that here but not deliberately you know copying as it were no absolutely and i
1: think that's the that's the, the benefit of giving, giving the opportunity to filmmakers of colour, to women, is mm. that these new modes start to emerge, which feel connected to a, a wider existing history, but also are, are their own thing and are only their own sensibility because yeah. of the people who make them, which is really exciting when you get a film like Hell County, which feels so fresh and exciting.
0: I I I Got my bodyguard now. Got my bodyguard. I'm gonna
1: make some sweet potato pies and some cakes. Uh huh.
0: Madeline's Madeline, I know you really love that.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, just there was so much that was unusual about it that the fact that it was a kind of young black lead in this kind of experimental theatre world yeah. didn't feel like the tokenistic only, you know, that was kind of melded in with a lot of other kind of uniquely positioned uh, things, including, yeah, just this approach of teacher student and where that boundary lies. But also, what I loved about it was the spill out. You know, I think a lot of the time you see stories where there's a kind of controlling teacher who kind of takes a young subject and molds them in their own identity, or kind of exploits them for creative. But but the so much of what was great about Madeline's Madeline was how that spilled out and how that impacted the life of this young person yeah, in yeah, their yeah. in their kind of day to day. Particularly the scene where the teacher sort of invites her to this party, and it's just then the the the, the young actress who's kind of through the through the work that she's doing with this experimental theatre company is on a journey of becoming and and self-identity starts to push against yeah, the yeah, world yeah, that yeah, she's yeah, been yeah, invited yeah. into and is kind of part of in a way which is so uncomfortable but also alt utterly gripping. It's really uncomfortable because everything's blurred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you're really unsure where you are in the scene. And then that just that just builds and builds to the point that the relationship with her mother, her real mother and this kind of mother figure is so so complex yeah, 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 yeah. that you you know you really are in the kind of the furnace with this idea of like what is acceptable to put young people through, but also you know what is the cost of doing any art form you know on, on on the people who make it. Mom, oh god, I I kissed that guy. <laughs> Gosh. Uh... Maybe we should have. Maybe we shouldn't have like rushed into something where there was quite so much responsibility. He could have herpes. He probably does. He knows a lot about porn, <laughs> and that's a sign. All, all just like around your mouth, little pustules. Sure. Stop using that hand stuff that just dries your skin out. That only makes. I have allergies. Worse. No, you don't have allergies. You have hypochondria. Is, are you looking at Tinder? Is that what that is? Have you been snooping on my phone?
0: I, I don't want I to trust wanna... anybody, okay?
1: Can I get out now? I, I, I we, make sure to choose the right, okay.
0: Excuse me. <laughs> Hi, yeah, okay, Right. Jesus, have a good day, goodbye. He's doing his job, you know, and you just- and You are... wanna use protection? You wanna be tested beforehand? Why would I get tested before? Okay, right, after, um, and,
1: oh, oh. wait, wait, wait. Yeah, I just thought it was a really fascinating kind of study, but also just I just thought the filmmaking was, yeah. was exquisite. I think Josephine Decker is a great, a great filmmaker. Again, with that, you know, this is a familiar story. It's ostensibly a kind of New York indie world, but there's so much going on with the filmmaking in terms of color and composition and, and editing that that feels fresh. It feels like a fresh voice. You know, so much of the films. That have kind of really excited in the last couple of years feel like new film vo- filmmaking voices. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's great to talk about them because it's rather than reverting back to, well, this is what everyone's talking about. Well, no, actually, let's remember this film came out on movie in this you know, I think it a little bit of cinema race, yeah. but
0: it reminded me quite a bit of Beasts of the Southern Wild okay. in terms of the aesthetic choice to to shoot from that perspective of yeah. the of the child. And I know a lot of people that film got a lot of pl- plaudits and then got quite a lot of backlash very quickly after that, and I still kind of think there's a lot of interest in that Peace film. In the Wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think this is this is much more of a complex piece.
1: Yeah, and it's I think it, it's it's more knowingly putting you in the perspective, yeah. and then complicating that perspective from within. You know, where it it knows that it knows what it's doing when it puts you in that world. Yeah, and then has. Has all the things that happen to that lead character as she's, you know, kind of suffering with severe mental health issues and trying to act in this piece. It's very aware and responsible with that. And I think that that's probably where it differs from Beats of the Southern World, which isn't necessarily as aware of the impact of putting you in that perspective necessarily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sort of again, I suppose, you know, within that post moonlight vein. If Beale Street Could Talk was a film I saw, I saw on the aeroplane on the way to uh, on the way to uh, Malaysia, and I, I thought it was really excellent in its own right. I thought it was very literary, and it probably didn't have that that kind of wow factor kudos that that Moonlight did did have, but all the the storytelling and the referentiality to James Baldwin, who we both absolutely love as a writer. Um, I think did service to that, but also the film itself as a piece of filmmaking stood up. Yeah, you know, in in a really fundamental way, and I think you know, the amazing sort of performances and that that sense of linking to a lot of the the conversations about race in America in a contemporary sense did did hold up very well, and I think it's a, you know it's a, it's a really solid is almost kind of like damning with faint praise but you know what i mean it was kind of like yeah there's somebody who's who's done this film and now has gone on and and backed it up with something really authentically good you know yeah absolutely it felt
1: yeah felt like a cementing of of jenkins which is not necessarily like you say the kind of the most exciting or sexiest thing because people want that yeah same experience they had with moonlight but then it was just great to see someone hit their stride i think i mean it's one. it would probably be pretty close to the top of mine simply because right. I think it's it's just stayed with me all year. Yeah. And there's so many images and scenes from it that are just there, you know, that just kind of the strength of his image is so yeah. powerful and the context of it. And there was just such a quiet power to it that I just kind of found overwhelming by the end, you know, that I just, there's so much going on and it feels really, really, it feels really knowledgeable about experience in a way that is yeah just kind of overwhelming I'm, I'm writing I've written a piece which hopefully will be out in the first quarter about it for beneficial shock so I won't say too much about it but yeah it's definitely a film that I think is going to stay with me for a long time um, and not just because of the ballroom thing which obviously is but because of the filmmaking I think that there's there's a power to it which is not showy <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. kind of remarkable I caught this meeting I had daddy ask you all to come over so I could tell you what I had to tell Fonny today. What I had to tell Fonny today is,
0: Fonny's going to be a father. We're going to have a baby. You and me? We fixin' to go out and get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. Don't worry, I, I'm mighty glad. <laughs> and who's gonna be responsible for this baby? The father and the mother. You can bet it won't be the holy damn ghost. I guess you call your lustful action love. I don't. I always knew you'd be the destruction of my son.
1: The Bible says, put to
0: death, therefore, all that is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. That child was born of sin, and the Holy Ghost is going to cause it to shrivel in your womb. But my son, my son will be forgiven. My prayers is oh! Oh, Frank! I think you'll find it still pumping, but I wouldn't call it no heart! So, in a, in a big gear change, I suppose there's been four films that are gonna be the biggest conversation suckers up of this year. And we've talked a bit about Joker, which I think is one. Yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which you we, which we kind of mentioned. I think we did on the bonus. We did Joker on the bonus, lady, didn't we? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, we talked about that a little bit. Star Wars which has just come out which we're not going to talk about and The Irishman. Yeah. Um which I do want to talk about a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Um What did you what did you think of The Irishman? I loved it. Yeah. I thought
1: it was amazing. I mean I just I thought it was absolutely extraordinary. Um Yeah. I I, lo- I loved it to bits. So it was just before I went just before film stock actually. It was I just I was kind of always checking the I always checked the the, the Cornwall listings for films yeah few, in mostly in futility but then <laughs> Newland Film House and I just sort of looked and thought you know I wonder if anywhere's going to screen it on at the cinema you know knowing that Roma never came anywhere near down here but I'd seen that the Irishman was playing in different places and it and it was it was in Newland on a Friday it was the Friday before I left to come back to Luton and I was like just going to cancel everything in that afternoon and I just headed down there and I think it was the fir- it was the opening day. And yeah, so I managed to see it in the cinema, which I was just so happy about, and I was just blown away by it. I've just exciting, exciting experience, really, you know, just I haven't really thought about it very much because it kind of went straight off something else, but and I've been trying to avoid the conversation because it's not much of a conversation, but the experience of watching it was kind of overwhelming and seeing a filmmaker at the you know, at that age, that in command of what they wanted to do. With the tone of a story and the underlying kind of subtext and of the theme of a story, I thought was extraordinary, um, and I didn't care about the, any of the technology stuff. You know? Right? Okay. Like, I was going to say the, that in the, in the sense of I could see the you know, I could see I could see it. Yeah. Um, people are saying oh you kind of forget about it. I never forgot about. No, it. No 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 no. But for me, it sets up this story of De Niro's character looking back on a life, and it's all about that memory. It's yeah. all about him going back into his own mind to remember these things which felt perfect for this kind of slightly uncanny version of the person mm. you know it worked in terms of the context of the story in a way that I think a different kind of t- if you'd have told it linear I don't think it would have worked because you'd have been like well eventually he's going to get to the right age and then he's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah whereas the fact that this was a person who was mining his own memory of something and these people and this kind of worked so I I, I kind of went with that and, and the fact that he was clearly an old man when he was acting in those young things with his young face was kind of weird but again, kind of worked. Um and just how gripping it was, the the sadness of this man's life. Yeah. You know, was just
0: yeah. Yeah, so I I absolutely loved it as well. Let's to say that straight. I mean, I did get taken out. There was one moment when and in fact B pointed it out to me when he was when he beat up the shopkeeper yeah and that was so true it's like it was this is a 30 40 year old face yeah. and he moves like he's 70 80 whatever he is and it just did not work at all but what i realized was that it's it's funny it kind of made me remember that the way that scorsese structures his movies and leads them to the ending and what he wants to say about specific kinds of characters and he's often got the same he's it reminded me he's often saying the same thing which is a thing i think is misread a lot of the time so if you look at the end of goodfellas and goodfellas is the film that, that is often charged with glorifying gangsters you know if you look at the ending of that film where Ray Lee otter is kind of saying i get to live the rest of my life like a schnook and there's no remorse there at all and then you look at the end of the wolf of wall street which is a film that i do think falls into the category of overly glorifying where it isn't able to pull itself back to the critique that I think it wants to make that the ending of that is look here are these people that are mesmerized with with this guy they can't help but be and at the end of this I think that there is no there is not a redemption story for the Robert De Niro character he isn't sorry yeah yeah the reason why you you love watching them even though they're doing these heinous things they don't see outside of their own kind of position in this world, mm. and therefore they don't—they don't have that remorse. And I think that this is a sort of comment on his entire kind of like filmmaking interest. Yeah, and I, it's really fascinating to watch this film and then sort of go back and uh, unpack hit a lot of his uh, his other movies. I understand some of the criticisms that that get made that come from. Outside of, of Scorsese, just as a filmmaker, and Scors, you know, Scorsese's history and the the stuff that that gets, the films get accused of a lot of the time now, and you know, and, and from a perspective that's rightly so, you know, is there enough of a, a role for women in these characters? Is it over glorifying the violence? Is it just men talking to each other, and you know, and, and not acknowledging the world outside? And I, th- but I think that that is part of what Scorsese is kind of. Criticizing and doing in a way, and ju- and ju- and just on the on the the performances themselves, you know. I think to me that the, the revelation of this was Joe pesky who was doing something that is so outside of his other roles, in, particularly in Scorsese movies. You know, if you think of of uh, of Goodfellas and then Casino, he is so subtle and so amazing in this. He's doing the Paul Sorvino character. Jimmy's pissed off at Fitz. Fitz is okay. We like Fitz. I'll tell you what the problem is. Jimmy's got that ball-busting Dorfman holding up loans that Fitz already okayed. I hate that Dorfman. He's such a pain in the ass fucking Jew. That's
1: what you want me to do. No, not that,
0: not that. What you gotta do is, you know, put a firecracker up Dorfman's ass. Fitz will get the message. He'll get the message. I mean, you can't do it to Fitz, because if, if you do it to that Lush, he'll run right to the feds and screw up everything. But Dorfman, you got to do it to Dorfman.
1: Yeah, he's the way to look at the, the power that's at play in the film. You know, he's a very quiet, very stoic character. He doesn't really say a lot. Which is what's so interesting about this kind of Paquin and a Paquin non, you know, non criticism really, which is she hasn't got any lines. It's like, well, it's that's not the point, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't really have a massive amount to say. Like, he, and Jesse Clemens doesn't either. No, he doesn't that <laughs> yeah, that's so much. funny that because he's in it for so long and then hardly says exactly, anything, <laughs> just in the background, you know. <laughs> but the, he, but, so yeah, Frank is the character that we understand power through, and Pesci's power is a quiet power and. The reason I think Pacino works in that role is because that hubris, that is the downfall. Yeah. Like that inability to be quiet and to see things and to just take a step back and to not say anything. And there's just so much of it. And that's the the way that Scorsese uses time in the film. How many chances do you need to understand that this is not... And Pesci's character every time is the same. It's quiet. It's like just, you know. Mm. And then, you know, the famous meme, you know, it's what it is. You know, yes. this is where we are. Um I think on the either on the the, the films of the year or maybe it's the Vanity Fair episode. I think it's the Vanity Fair kind of little gold men talking about this idea and that, that Scorsese's preoccupation has been a critique of masculinity, yeah, from day one. Absolutely right. Like he is, yeah. The first hour and a half of Goodfellas is pretty celebratory, about yeah, 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 yeah. But the last hour or so is the opposite. Yeah, I mean, he he is saying. Look, and it's not just the ending, it's like, look at what becomes of Ray Liotta's character, driving around, coked up, paranoid. Yeah. His life is an absolute shambles. There's no glamour yeah. in that, in that, and there's no glamour in The Irishman in terms of yeah. what becomes. And I think what was interesting about this and The Wolf of Wall Street is that these are characters, like you say, who at the end of it don't care. No. You know, Um the The problem with the Wolf of Wall Street is that it's a real life person who got away with so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's harder to swallow. But it definitely feels of a piece with what Scorsese is doing, which is putting these lives under the microscope. Yeah. There's just nowhere to have any kind of redemption or punishment. Mm. You know, Frank's punishment is pretty explicit through his daughter. The sadness of it is that he knows that, but he has no way of yeah. changing. No, no, he no. has. There is no way he could have done it differently, or he can now. Yeah. because like you say, he is. This is his life, and he's loyal to it, and it's really complicated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. So the little gold men thing was interesting because it's like shouldn't it would be great if a Scorsese film came out, or even a Tarantino film came out, you know, with the Margaret Tate thing, and wasn't held up as a oh, another another. Adult, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I, that, because yeah, then it reduces that. what the work that they're doing to, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And yes, okay, they are in a very privileged position. I think both have created films with with. Really fascinating female characters in yeah, there, absolutely. In a minority yeah. compared to the body of work, and then you only have to look at the imitators. You have to look at someone like Guy Ritchie's, yeah, 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 you know, idea of what Scorsese's doing, yeah, to understand really what, what what Scorsese's been doing as a preoccupation for his entire career. And what I loved about The Irishman was that it felt very similar to Silence. Yeah, I think they're both very very similar films in terms of what they're exploring, which is mm. men's dedication to a lifestyle, which is dangerous and toxic and complicated um, but the willingness to just to to commit to an ideology and see it through and what that cost is societally what that cost is personally I think yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. is of a piece with someone late in their life and yeah. that's been really disappointing for me is that this film feels like a companion piece and people should be reminding people that three years ago he made a very similar film yeah. which is kind an of extraordinary and certainly one of my favourite Scorsese films mm. um, you know so let's you know, let's not just—we know Goodfellas is good. Yeah. You know, let's not go. Let's talk about. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. and not see it as a gangster movie. But let's see it as a kind of late work yeah, with yeah, someone yeah. reckoning with their entire life and We're, the decisions that they've made. And I think part of that is in there. Is Scorsese looking back at his own identity as this kind of filmmaker and and kind of critiquing it and questioning it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And it, and it's funny because I, I I had coffee with Jill Jillian Harker who was on the last episode, and she said she watched uh, Bringing Out the Dead the other day. and was like. This it's is great. possibly one of the best films I've ever seen. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. absolutely out of this world. Never gets mentioned yeah. at all. And and, and it's think, really dark. as oh well. Oh god, really yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You know, and right. like much more, much more contemporary yeah. than sort of Goodfellas or Casino were. I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Which are very sort of harking back to the sort of sixties, seventies emergence of the gangster culture yeah. in America and that. You know, and he kind of he can he can veer into kind of
1: nihilism. Yeah, yeah, much yeah, yeah. more than people really acknowledge. You know what? That, that was what I really loved about The Departed was. People sort of see it as this kind of light film. And I don't see it, though. I think it's really nihilistic. Like, all those characters are really nasty, really without kind of... And it's just... And everyone dies at the end. Like, it's just... It's really dark. And I wrote about that a few years ago. And Bringing Out the Dead feels like he makes these films occasionally, which, where it's a kind of cathartic yeah. expunging of really dark demons that we know he's had as a person, particularly in the 70s, You know, yeah. that I think is, does kind of
0: surface every now and again in his films. Okay, I think the other thing that I definitely wanted to talk about was Bait. Again? Um, Do we have again? to talk about it again? But just very quickly, I think. that, that <laughs> I could talk know, about this film all day. Yeah. I mean, we were just talking before we came on that uh, Mark Kermode has put it as his number one film of, of the year, which is quite a statement, I think, because that that is, uh, of, any, of any lists, that's probably in the UK the one that's going to get looked at the most. And I think it really just sort of marks what... a <laughs> what an amazing film it is but also what a you know a cultural moment and a sort of validation of someone who we know very well and who we've always thought has been great you know and um, and that they they are working at an extremely high artistic creative level and it's just amazing that 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 has come come to the fore come to fruition in the way that it has
1: yeah just kind of thinking, we mentioned the Berlin episode earlier on, you know, yeah. we kind of talked to Mark there and we were both there, yeah. you know, when that was kind of the kind of groundswell for the film. But even then, I think it was, if you would just said where that film would have gone in terms of like people's, yeah, kind of recognition of it and engagement with it, it was, you wouldn't necessarily have said he would have had the year that he'd had. And it, it is testament to, to him as a filmmaker having... Yeah, just the the conviction and the vision to to stick to his guns and do something that he knows is and then and all those other forces which need to come into play aligning. You know, it's really exciting to see a film that is so so singular do so well at the box office in the yeah, UK yeah, yeah, yeah. and then to still be in the conversation at the end of the year when people are kind of bringing up lists that was in it's been in quite a few kind of it, and it won the screen. Yeah, it Screen did. Daily Film with it was number U- eight product. on Science Sound, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in the, um, yeah, number eight on Science Sound, and then top 15, I think, in Time Out, you know, and all those lists are still coming out. And it's it's just exciting. It really is because we know how hard Mark works, and anyone who's followed the podcast knows his his kind of decisions to take ownership of his career a few years ago and and dictate the terms on which it's kind of conducted. Yeah. And then. And to see that rewarded with this level of, of um, audience and kind of critical engagement is, is a kind of win for, a win for independent film. I think.
0: Yeah, without without a shadow of a doubt. And yeah, we wanted to talk about it as well because it's 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 so difficult, isn't it? There is a connection bias that is very difficult to get around, really. And you know, I wouldn't know where I, I would put this on my on any list objectively. You know, aspiring to. To an objective list of what was the the best film, I, I just because of the experience of watching it for the first time, because I was at the the premiere in Berlin with him and his team. There's no way of sort of quantifying, you know, your experience of watching the film. And I yeah. watched it, you know, I've, I've watched it at home and again at the, at, at the cinema, and it, it just it just continues to be something that I think is you know technically but also you know thematically and in terms of where it sits in the lots of different sort of wings of film history and and film appreciation is just is just magical you know
1: yeah it's, it's hard to be objective about it but also i think when i saw the film and it's interesting because everyone's talking about it like it's the start like it's yeah, his yeah, first yeah. thing you know no, for yeah, me it felt like it. a culmination yeah yeah absolutely you know absolutely it was wrong. it was like saying ah oh, this is this is what he's been working to for the last few years you know um you know his kind of his short film work not his necessarily his video diary work which is amazing it's kind of film diary stuff but a lot of the short film like uh you know uh enough to fill up an egg cup and, and things like that and and then bronco's house obviously this is where he's been moving towards and then to see it and be like he's done it in a feature which is yeah funny and formally daring Gripping. I mean, that. Se- I remember seeing the sequence with the lobster pot and just thinking yeah, yeah, this is yeah. an absolute masterclass. Yeah, and everyone's yeah. talking about Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood <laughs> ranch scene, which I think is a yeah, masterclass yeah. intention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm like, the lobster pot scene in Bait is as much of a masterclass intention and editing and you know, kind of cinematic time as anything else this yeah, year. Yeah, it's yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. You've been clamped. I think so. Yeah. Who done that? Who do you think? You own the bloody street. You can't just
0: park there all day. It's fine you're picking stuff up and dropping stuff off. I work off. in the
1: Arbor, I'm a bloody fisherman.
0: Are you? Where's your boat? See you on the beach.
1: I'm telling Mum you're hanging around with him.
0: You live in
1: this community. Oh, the community. Yeah, and it was like this is this is where he should be operating yeah. um creatively and then yeah, kind of feels like, yeah, of course people are responding to it because it's really good. Yeah. Um yeah, so it has been an exciting year to kind of track to track
0: that film. Um thanks to Mark for all supporting the podcast. Indeed. And go back to the uh the Luton episode where we where we interview him for an hour about it. So um any other things that you just want to mention in this first hour before we get onto our Top fives each, yeah. So, the, the I've, I've chosen five films to talk about, which
1: we'll get like you say, we'll get into in the next hour. But there was a couple that, um, kind of wanted to just sort of mention that I really, really love that I don't know if people saw or were aware of. One is, um, <laughs> Steven, Soderbergh had two, Steven Soderbergh had two films out this year, right? Uh, the Laundromat, which was a lot of fun, um, and High Flying Bird, which came out right at the start of the year. I saw it, I think it dropped just before yeah. on Netflix, it, wasn't it? It yeah. was on yeah, yeah, that was a Netflix movie, and uh. It dropped just before Berlin. I think I saw it on the on the maybe on the plane actually on, on my on my pad on the way to Berlin. Um, and it's just yeah, it was it, it was exhilarating to have him back making movies. You know, and you could feel the fact that it was shot with an iPhone in the best way. You know, like him out with these actors in New York, walking in the streets. Great dialogue by um, Tori McCraney, who wrote Moonlight, um, and this kind of story of a yeah, a kind of NBA freeze out. Um, and just the machinations of a kind of sports move from behind the scenes. Someone trying to get the kind of the, the the freeze, the freeze thawed was just just great. You know, kind of like in that annoying Soderbergh way of I've just gone out and made this movie, and it feels <laughs> just rift this fucking yeah. amazingly produced piece of work. Yeah, <laughs> and it's kind of throwaway and it's kind of disposable, but it's also just absolutely great and just really entertaining. Um, Really, yeah, just one of my favorite filmmakers, kind of operating again in cinema, which was really exciting. And the other one was a—I can't remember who made it, but it's a film called Knife Plus Heart, which stars uh, Vanessa Paradis as a uh, kind of porn producer in uh, in Paris, and it's this kind of weird Jalo kind of serial killer movie about someone's going around killing actors in this um, gay porn uh, world. Um, and she's a she's kind of broken up with her girlfriend and is kind of like going through this breakup. But it's a really lurid and exciting movie. I think it was a movie release. Um just I've been getting more and more into kind of folk horror and genre. And this is a really seventies mm. horror, um, kind of Argento um inspired, great score. But just Vanessa Paradis is just extraordinary in it as and her performance is fantastic to the point, yeah, where it's you know that that kind of classic someone on the outside who's making a lot of decisions which are promote are kind of prompting the deaths she starts to use all of these kind of killings as a way of kind of as a, as content for her failing kind of gay porn empire um, and then the lines between what she's doing and what's happening in, in the real world kind of get blurred to the point where it's just this kind of Carnival of chaos at the end, which is really really great. Um, so, that was a film that I just again kind of came out of nowhere, loved it. Um,
0: if it's if it turns up anywhere, definitely check it out. Awesome! Um, so, that's the end of the first half of our end of year review, and we'll be back in a second with our five recommendations for the year. So we are back for the second half of our end-of-year review. So, Neil, do you want to kick us off? Um, What film do you want to start off with? One of the lists that you really want to talk about. I would really like to talk about Her
1: Smell, which is the Alex Ross Perry film uh, starring Elizabeth Moss about a hugely dysfunctional uh, female rock star and a kind of descent into addiction and hell and then the somewhat tentative steps out of the other side. And long... Yeah, long been known that. Yeah, kind of. I know Alex, and he's been a friend, and followed his career since. Co-screening kind of his first feature, Impollex, at Filmstock ten years ago. So it's interesting that that was. Yeah, that was the last. The last Filmstock in its first iteration was the first time I met Alex, and this is a film which criminally kind of played a couple of festivals in the UK, and then wasn't officially released in the cinema. And I kept saying, "When's it coming out?" And he was like, "Autumn, autumn," and it never arrived and then it popped up on um, I was just doing that kind of oh what what's left to see and I kind of wanted to see if it was online and it was on iTunes for one ninety nine. I was like that's exactly where I got it from yeah. <laughs> which is you know which is great because you know I've seen it but also sad sad yeah I mean sad because I think that particularly with this film I could see why I could see why kind of Listen Up Philip and Queen of Earth and particularly Golden Exits might have had less of a kind of splash here I think because of they're very American. They're very kind of in that kind of indie sensibility. This felt like, like a real, a real step forward into a different space for him, and with lots of I thought touchstones, which would have allowed it to be kind of more widely seen, particularly the, the kind of the period. It's sort of in the '90s kind of um, uh, indie scene. Yeah, it was a bit baffling in terms of why it didn't get more of a, um, more of a push here. But all that side, as a film on its own, I just thought it was, yeah, kind of grueling and difficult and challenging, but ultimately kind of remarkable, mainly for her performance, which I thought is just stunning. But also because of how committed committed it was to telling a story which is so often romanticised and glamorised in terms of the difficult artist, you know, it really kind of, the third, it's set into, in three acts. The first three acts are having to tolerate her being a difficult artist and not really seeing much mm-hmm. of the much of the reason why she's tolerated. You know, it's kind of glimpsed. Um, and there's a scene where she's in the studio trying to record an album and it's going really, really badly. And then this new girl group come in and there's just like, she does half a song in the studio, in the, you know, in the, the recording room. And... Uh, there's a moment where you're like, ah, oh, that's it. That there, there, there it is. This kind of really fleeting, almost kind of kingfisher, kingfisher kind of sighting of the the thing that makes her the the, the star, um, and it's quickly gone, and she's quickly back to being really difficult, and she's made everyone's life miserable. Everyone's suing her, and and then it, there's a real, there's a literally this kind of moment where it it, it switches, and the switch I just found utterly remarkable. The first half feels like a Gaspar Noé film, like particularly the first sequence. First it's really th- yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. it's throbbing, it's aggressively, uh, the audio is really aggressive. You're in this uncomfortable space. There's a lot of handheld camera following her, literally moving very unpredictably in the space. It's uncomfortable, um, relentless. She's here. You're actually suing me, right? Or is that somebody else? I'm suing
0: They'll see you in court. Judge! Your Honor! Mm-hmm. Is it a crime in this country? To prefer the witching hour, I was born with an internal clock. A doctor left it inside me. <laughs> <laughs> I called to the stand my mother, Mrs. Anya Adamczyk, miss Polinska. Mrs. Check. do you swear solemnly that your daughter was born with a rare neurological condition that renders the passage of time an enforced illusion from the external world? Judge, please, I just can't seem to get going till later at night. you think
1: I want to be late? Those people deserve a show.
0: And you have no idea the hell that I've been through. I am wishing there was any way on earth I could get going, but I just don't think I will make it. Promise me, Mama, when I die, have the coffin arrive half an hour late and on the side written in gold letters, other words. Sorry for the delay.
1: And then there's literally like this kind of snap, mm-hmm. and you see her sat on a sofa, and she's just staring into space. And it's so abrupt. And her performance is so good that in that moment I just felt like I'm looking at the shell of a person I'm just looking at someone who is absolutely there's nothing in that person anymore and we don't really get a sense of who that person was other than this difficult diva essentially um it's really startling and then you just spend time with her in a completely different aesthetic space trying to piece together what's left of her life um kind of unsentimentally in the sense of just spending time watching someone struggle to be alive without the dependency of of the fame and the narcotics, you know, the narcotics and the, the addiction of the fame. Um, and then, yeah, then the film ends with her trying to go back on stage in this kind of frenetic sequence, which is quite different to the first kind of opening sequence. Where but it could fall apart any yeah, minute. You know really, what I mean? Yeah, it's <laughs> on the knife ahead, edge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is absolutely on the knife edge. And everyone's kind of like trying to find her because it's like this kind of celebration show. And, Where is she? What's she doing? What's she done? You know, she's uncertain. Everyone's uncertain. And then, yeah, you're just, you're willing her to, you're willing her to, 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 to get there. But also, and I think this was really brilliant at the end was that you, you, you understand what it takes to do these things in a physical, emotional sense. And it's, yeah, it's exhausting. I just, I was just exhausted by the end of it, but I thought it was, I thought it was a great movie. Mm. Um, Yeah. And my my interest in it, I suppose, was being a fan of that era of music and, you know, that whole kind of that's where I kinda came of age in the nineties in terms of music. But halfway through none of that I wasn't interested in any of that stuff. I was interested in in this account of a person and just the, i thought the filmmaking was extraordinary the way the way he put it together uh, with his team of collaborators i just yeah cannot recommend
0: it highly enough fantastic i have i have to say that it's really interesting to hear you talk about it because i came almost to the same conclusion but from a completely opposite direction because like the first 10 15 minutes i was like how long do i give this really yeah. because I, even the romanticization of <laughs> backstage Music gigs and romanticization of certain kinds of bands, particularly kind of like destructive punk bands who don't give a fuck about anybody. And how cool is that? I don't buy any of that to begin with. And I'm like, I just fucking hate all of these people. And therefore, why am I watching this? But the, the and and particularly then as well when she's doing the thing with with the kind of like shaman. Oh, I need my energies and all this kind mm. of thing. And it's just please, somebody come in and 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 you know smash this place and everybody in it. And I was just like... And I, I actually did turn it off. And I was like, no, c- c- come on, because this is going somewhere. And I think there is an element at the beginning as well where it could be seen as a caricature mm. of that. It just about manages to hold on to it, I think, through Elizabeth Moss. Mm. Um, because I think when the girl group come in as well, that almost fails, I think, because it they're not as good as her, I'm mm. afraid. you know. But I think then once you get through that and then you get into the second half and it does... The, the first half allows it to go to where the second half ends up. And then you are... What What does it mean to go from somewhere who is com- someone who's completely and utterly you know, fucking messed up to somebody who has to kind of reclaim or re- re-establish even the, their own sense of their identity? Because I think that's the interesting part is we have this sort of coherent sense of self. And if you test that to destruction through drugs, through fame, through whatever... And then you you realise that that all kind of disintegrates and you're left with with precisely nothing. I mean, there's a little bit of an element because she does do that, the the sort of Brian Adams song and 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 they do that in its entirety. And and I think that that is the illusion of oh she she uses the the talent or the music to you know it sounds like a cliche to sort of reconnect, but it's kind of like actually you have to get outside of yourself and sort of do something yeah. to be able to sort of reconnect yourself to to reality and. And I think that's really well done. And then I think that that puts you, again, as a viewer in the space of, oh, fuck, this could go back to, you know, her just just launching into a cocaine fueled ramp at the the very end. And I think it it does... It is kind of risk-taking filmmaking in that sense. You know, it's not a risk in the, you you, you know, the sense I'm talking about. It's a risk in the fact that this could go, like, completely wrong and be totally panned. In a way, similar... Completely different film, but in a similar way to sort of a ghost story where I'm going to have the sheet over my main actor for the entire film. Am I torching my career? You know, I remember David Lowry saying that. There's a sort of element of that, that this could go, you know, drastically wrong, but I think it just about pulls it off. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a nice analogy. I think we might talk a little bit about ghost story again later on maybe maybe. Um, so yeah what's your first so my first one let me just get my uh, list up Yes. Yeah, so the first film I want to talk about which again could have been anywhere could have been at number one this really and if we were grading them in that way but I want to talk about Matty Diop's Atlantics which is suddenly I think in the last couple of weeks since it's come out has got you know a, a massive amount of traction in terms of people you know maybe not in you know in the, in the, the wider sphere of film conversation but it's possibly the most surprising film that I've seen this year. And it traverses sort of tone and genre so expertly that sometimes when you when when you say something tonally shifts or is you know is jumping genres or is playing around with genre, it's almost kinda of like a criticism. What you're really saying is this filmmaker didn't quite know what they wanted to make, but I never had the sense of this. It doesn't feel inconsistent or messy. It feels absolutely the kind of film that the the filmmaker wanted wanted to make. It's absolutely visually beautiful, but visually terrifying. And it's like two sides of that same coin. And it happens in various different ways. So you've kind of like got the sea as a metaphor and the death of crossing that sea... You know, then you've got the the sunset, which is absolutely beautiful. But then you've got the darkness after the sunset, which brings out these, you know, the sort of certain elements of the film, which are sort of scary and terrifying. Then you've got the kind of like wealth and comfort and then the exploitation that that's built on. So the sort of beauty and ugliness in tension with each other throughout the movie and again, with, with the sort of generic elements, it, it starts off kind of documentary style. You know, it's it, it's very handheld. starts off on this building site and we get, narratively, we see that these building workers are not being paid. So it's set in Dakar, isn't it? And yeah. Which is, you know, it's got its own connotations, I think, if you do some reading around in terms of, you know, the investment of capital and what impact that has had. And I'll come back to the sort of social context of it. But it settles into this sort of realist, almost sort of social realist, Drama in a in a way, but then tells this sort of romantic story. So there's these two, this young couple that that fall in love and and a sort of beautifully pay, played, but again they're they're amateur actors. I don't think you know. So they it has that sense of authenticity. I think that underpins it. And then it does sort of abruptly move into this surrealistic, fantasy horror gothic narrative move, which I think is. Is absolutely sort of metaphorical, but comes out of the realism, mm-hmm. which is really clever—an amazing thing to be able to do. Because you know, it's not—it's not a zombie film; it's not a ghost story, although it is a ghost story. But it's very difficult for you to take it just as that. You know what I mean, in a generic sense, and, and say, "Oh well, the, the, you know, it's not. This is not wedded to, wedded to the or connected to the realist aesthetic and the and the the realism of the situation." that is definitely being commented on from a sort of social realist perspective. And, you know, it's got so many filmic re- references again from within. It's clear that this is a, an ode to Claire Denis. You know, it's it's as close to Beau Travail in the way that it's been shot, I think. And, uh, you know, it, it's sort of portrayal of bodies interacting and spaces and bodies mm-hmm. interacting. There's just this amazing use of the nightclub and the lighting within the nightclub as both an aesthetic and a narrative sort of center
1: to the film. Omar. <laughs> i
0: References to James Baldwin, references I think to even to sort of just like John Carpenter in terms of the horror elements of it, where there's this sort of creeping menace. An absolutely amazing moment where you you get the reveal of these creatures coming back and where they've come from and what their effect is, and 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 outside of of any kind of like need to fall into a formulaic process where here are the characters, they're going to be scaring these characters, and are they going to escape, are they not? None of that at at all. Absolutely ingrained into this narrative, socially concerned representation of life in this this area of the world that speaks to to so many things that we we talk about now. You know, globalization, immigration, the way in which organizations are corrupt and... um, and define the experience that the broader sense of that word have it's an absolute completely unexpected masterpiece and and a, like a first feature albeit from a, a filmmaker is extremely experienced in terms of short filmmaking um and i think that, that you know people that i i i i sort of admire and respect in terms of their their understanding of film i think really are clued up on on this movie i mean it got a a very meagre three stars in The Guardian, which is, I, I mean, I just wasn't watching the same film, to be honest with
1: you. Yeah, uh, that was great. Yeah, it was thrilling to listen to because um, it's a film that obviously I've, it's, it's so new. Neither of us had, I didn't know your thoughts on The Irishman. I didn't know your thoughts on on this. And I, yeah, they're, they're very similar. I think it is a masterpiece. I think it's a beautiful film and it was just so thrilling to see someone not care about how genre should be used, you know, like this is how I'm using these. The carpenter reference, I think is, is yeah, is a great one. And it definitely feels like the fog,
0: you know, accountability of. Well, she mentioned that actually. Oh, I heard the, okay. So I didn't, I, you know, that right. to be fair, I, I was sort of mentioning that because I did have the, the carpenter reference, but she actually specifically mentions the fog in the Lincoln site society interview. She did. Oh, okay. I haven't heard that yet. No, I mean, which is that, great.
1: And that makes sense now in terms of you saying that. And also, yeah, thinking back on, yeah, you know, kind of the yeah accountability of of, of nature and uh, and what's left in in its wake, kind of thing, um, and how people kind of yeah, particularly hide behind, you know, the, the, the social realist kind of element at the at the heart of it, which is this, you know, the construction world and what that represents and how they yeah how they get away with it and how mm. in the film they don't um, which I think is brilliant it, it reminded me of a ghost story in a similar way of a very very simple visual conceit to yeah. tell a really unsettling and kind of powerful yeah. story you know almost almost kind of well childlike but also but primitive as well yeah, like yeah. it's you know the representation of the, the the kind of the ghostly spectral element in this is is so simple yeah. but it's so powerfully done um, to be really unsettling you know um, it's really really smart um, also reminded me of Bertrand Bonello's Zombie Child which was that oh, episode, right. I, I, which I, I, I really liked yeah, um, yeah. but it's a similar kind of thing of taking ancient ideas rooted in place so that's to do with uh, voodoo in Haiti and kind of transplace to, to modern day France and an historical story but Slightly different in the sense that that's obviously a slight outsider looking at culture, and this is obviously Matthew Dioch is much more connected, but a kind of fluidity between spaces of quote unquote realism and quote unquote fantasy. Yeah. You know, and how those two are used in tension and in symbiosis to tell this story, which is kind of revealing about, yeah, the kind of layers of society and layers of kind of history and how those two things are kind of closely joined. Yeah. So great. Great pick, um, great movie. Fantastic. So, what's next up for you, Neil? Next up for me is Michael Scorsese's best film this year. Wow. I know. I, Big I say, claim. Uh, I'm not one I necessarily believe. <laughs> um, Rolling Thunder Review, the Bob Dylan documentary. I wanted to just sort of highlight it really because, again, I was thinking this about this the other day. So many things just come and go now. Like, I, I noticed it, I saw Catch 22 on the shelf, not here, somewhere else. Joseph Ellis Crash in too, and then it was like, oh yeah, there was a Catch 22 TV series with George Clooney. Yeah, year.
0: yeah, there was. Yeah, and yeah. I've like, completely by- bypassed it. Just gone. Out. Yeah, you know,
1: no one's talking about it. It's, it's happened, and that's. Yeah. I think like ten years ago, that would have been a major yeah. thing. And the other thing was, oh yeah, there's a Breaking Bad movie this year. Yeah, which I haven't watched. Which I haven't. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so yeah, all yeah. these. There's so much stuff. So it's like okay, and then I was thinking about the year in music documentary, as I do, and this film is another example of Scorsese's. Just incredible track record in this space. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant film, completely on its own terms. Not as a rec, well, not as a, not as an insight into Dylan or what Dylan was thinking when he did the Rolling Thunder review, um, but just a chance to spend time with Bob Dylan. And I think that more and more, that's what I'm interested in in terms of. You know Bob Dylan. I mean, you know his his book chronicles Volume One. His autobiography is a great example of a non-autobiography. He's not interested in telling you the facts of his life. He's not interested in telling yeah. you. He's playing the mythology Bob, game. I haven't. He really. has it all the time. Yeah, right. he's always interested in uh, mirage and uh, what's the word they say like dis dis something. You know, kind of keeping people on their toes and not letting them in. And that's been his whole modus operandi from day one. And this is just another example of it. Really, like that and the way the film melds fantasy into this kind of historical document and creates these accounts of people who were supposedly there but none of them who, who were or played different roles there and just create this kind of narrative and a playing along with Dylan. i just think is it's just really fun and really great and another reminder of his supreme ability to mythologize just what a what a kind of person who's able to do that And then at the heart of it is this footage, which is undeniable, you know, similar to Amazing Grace, really. Like the footage of Dylan on stage doing these shows, performing, particularly, you know, One More Cup of Coffee, is just, it's electric. You know, like you're just, he has not toured for years. You really get the sense of of a person at the height of their powers. And what Scorsese does brilliantly is that he knows that footage stands alone. (laughs) He knows that's what people are there for. So the other stuff is, is packaging, and what great packaging, but I really, really, I really loved it, I had a great time, and was absolutely thrilled by this footage, which is just, yeah, what a performer. Your breath is sweet, your eyes are like to jewel as in the sky. Your back is straight, your hair is smooth, on oh, the pillar where
0: you lie. But I don't sense affection No gratitude or love Your loyalty is not to me but to the stars above Who want more a cup of coffee for
1: the road Who want more a cup of coffee for I go To the valley below Kind of what was great about it was so much of the kind of the modern Dylan myth is that, you know, his never ending tour with his, he doesn't sing, he's got this kind of weird voice, and he does these weird interpretations of his own back catalogue. He feels very, very far away from the Dylan that, you know, kind of broke through and became a kind of global star. And this is a reminder of just what a great performer he was, what a great on stage musician, what a great singer. What a great leader of a band! Like just everything that you kind of almost forgotten was kind of back, and yeah, if it has passed you by and you think, oh, you know, it's just just watch someone again, just absolutely tear it up, just yeah, brilliant, yeah, yeah. brilliant live footage, um, and it's fun to see Sharon Stone pretending that she was a kid who was like groupie who was on tour and was kind of picked out of a crowd by Dylan. you know, like all that stuff. It's and I think what was great about it was it annoyed a lot of people, you know. Yeah, yeah It's yeah. part. Of, it's one of those films which is perfect for 2019 because it's basically lying and not and like doesn't care and people are like well no this has not already happened and it's misleading it's like it's not misleading it's kind of telling a story it's not purporting to be the truth it's presented as a as a fiction but you want it to be real and you're upset that it's having fun with the facts and it's like well it's got to be 100 real and it's it's like dylan doesn't care about that and the film doesn't care about that and it was refreshing, that it was just a load of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really expertly woven together. Mm. Um, and it annoyed people, and that also sure. made me really happy.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like We talked about Scorsese earlier on, but Scorsese as the music documentarian, I think is an interesting... No, it's not a side note at all, but a, a strand of his interest. I think it's fascinating, because I remember first watching the George Harrison one and just being sort of absolutely mesmerised by the way he's he is weaving a narrative and it is a constructed narrative as much as anything else but i think definitely this film does that even more because of uh, of who dylan is and yeah. what dylan is and it's interesting again the sort of just the dylan documentaries themselves are, are interesting sort of contributions to that how they contribute to that mythology yeah. what from what angle they they do it from um I, you know, I have to say that there's there's nothing more enjoyable than watching uh, Bob Dylan's contribution to We Are the World on on YouTube. Have you seen that? I it's to to, the yeah. funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, you should Google that. That's for sure. Be, yeah. <laughs> that's not top of my watch list. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Again, I think it was a film that I probably didn't sit down with enough of a kind of commitment beforehand. It's funny you mentioned that that problem we all have of there's too much stuff. Yeah and you know we talk, I think we talked about it last year maybe about that you know the podcaster's curation I know you're you're doing some work on that right now but just curating yourself in the broad scheme of things is it's just bloody impossible yeah, these days yeah, it's, it's so difficult isn't it
1: and I think that it's a film that does operate on that level yeah. you know you can just have it on in the background and kind of dip in and out of these performances um, but as someone who kind of like follows music documentary yeah. it's and again yeah Scorsese's kind of he's as good a music documentarian as he is a feature filmmaker which is kind of rare that someone operates at that level across the board he is a he is a one-off cool where you go next
0: so uh next i want to talk about three faces by Jasper panahi now again this was a film that i definitely wanted to have in there not just because of the film not just because of the filmmaker not just because of the context of the filmmaker but because of I saw it at the beginning of the film and remember just being how blown away I was by it and how sort of engrossed and admiring of of the man and his, his ability to make cinema, you know what I mean? A great cinema that, forget everything else on the outside, is just somebody who's interrogating the very form and what it can do and what it what it purports to be able to do and some of the problems and the hypocrisies of things like, you know, realism and truth and performance and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's amazing to think when this is the fourth film that he's made despite this 20-year filmmaking ban, it's it always kind of... I was thinking to myself, do, do, do the Iranians never watch these films, you know, or see that they come out in the West and they get smuggled out and he never gets punished? I mean, I, I don't know. There must be something going on going on there. But because of this... You know embargo on him when he's not he, he, not supposed to be a filmmaker. He shoots on cheap handheld cameras and with mobile phones, so they have a particular aesthetic. But that is worked into the into the very content. So form and content uh, are not separate here; they're in, ingrained with each other. I I would suggest, and like his other films, in this sort of. Series, let's say. I mean, again, it's so churlish to call it a series. Like the films he's had to make in this way because of the of the conditions, it's a meta narrative. So he's got uh, Benaz Jafai and and Panahi himself, who she's a, a famous Iranian actress, and he's in it himself, which he he has been in his films, um, or or maybe more accurately, they perform themselves because again, what what he's doing there is is very meta, I think. And they go in search of this uh, young girl because um, I think she's been delivered this video, which a phone shot video, which shows this young aspiring act- actress that the older actress knows, ostensibly about to kill herself. You know, but you never actually see that happen in the film. But they then they go off on this journey to try and find her, and they they, they think that they know where uh, where she hit- is. So it it, it turns into this, this kind of road movie odyssey, which which ties to his other films you know, like Taxi, uh, Taxi Tehran. And they go on this road movie and, and they, they, they're they encountering sort of interesting characters who are all sort of playing a, a role in the journey to find the girl, but also represent something about the themes that he's interested in, in terms of... I mean, particularly, the, the, I think this film is very much a statement about Iranian womanhood and the, the broader religious and societal repressions that are obviously in place in Iran. But interestingly, he kind of implicates himself in that because of these discussions that they have in the car. So they're talking about her acting in one of his films and the, and I think they're sort of performing an argument that they've had about her role in his fa- filmmaking career and, the, you know, having arguments about that as they go. As they go through these different locations, she's well known, so she's recognized in these different environments. And the way that she is treated is different to the way that the other Iranian women are, are treated. So she's allowed to sit at certain tables where the other women are bringing, hmm. you know, the coffee or whatever it is, the tea, and, and and looking after the men. She's sort of allowed to sort of sit in the same the same level as the men, but are still treated in a certain kind of way. So it's it's a very different take on stardom, and particularly female stardom, which is really really interesting. I'm going to go to the house. I'm
1: going to go to the house. onu am going to go to the house. I'm سه روزی که مرزیه رفته از خونه یرو بر نگشت.
0: هواای دامیش باغ چقدر بسیاره. می دونیشتم آخر ادوگاته خوبی نداره. گفتم شوهر بدهیم. شاید دامیش باغ یادش. سه روزه نش خبر ندارن. اینم اوردی. ش. نه بیدار بگور. So it's playing with these ideas of, of fiction versus documentary. It's not acted in the theatrical sense, but it is implying what is a performance? What is the performance of self? Essentially cinematic, but also asking, what is cinematic realism? What is cinematic formalism? And, you know, it's as close as filmmaking kind of gets, I think, to philosophical filmmaking in process because of the conditions, because of what it, what he's trying to do. and. In the teaching I do on film philosophy on screen, there's always this question of whether films can ever be philosophy in and of themselves, or are they just commenting on philosophical ideas? And I think this is one of the filmmakers that does get close to that. And I, I think also this this particular film is an ode to Stami, particularly Taste of Cherry and the Wind Will Carriers, which are both on movies, so you can watch those films to get a sense of of this film. But but I think this is absolutely brilliant. Piece of calm but insightful and powerful filmmaking from from a filmmaker who I I really I really rate highly.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask that. Actually. I mean, he's a filmmaker that seems to recur
0: a lot when you're talking. Yeah, about would you say he's one of your favourites? You know, like he definitely is. And I think it's that just respect for the fact that, and again, I've talked about this before, a body of work that somebody creates and what they're trying to do with that, and I think that. He is definitely somebody with a body of work who is trying to do something that is recurring but different every time and is cinematic in a way that doesn't, absolutely does not rely on all of the things that in the West we yeah. tend to assume are cinematic. And then you add on top the political situation that he's in. He's almost the end point of that, maxim that you put restrictions on yourself to to push creativity, yeah. he's the extreme version of that. There's no one who who you could point to and say does that more than, yeah, than yeah. ben Panahi.
1: No, I think that's a that's a great shout. Yeah, and he's definitely an inspiration in that sense of redefining what the cinematic is based yeah. on the situation he finds himself in as a filmmaker. Yeah, um,
0: and there's almost a political duty to watch his films for me anyway. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's like to go through that you've Got to watch him,
1: <laughs> but I think what's you know, I mean, I recently, I mean, I love this is not a film, and I recently, w- I recently saw Taxi Tehran for the first yeah. time, which was just wonderful. It's just, <laughs> it's just it's crazy, isn't you know. It? Yeah. Um, and I actually took a lot of screen grabs of the child, yeah. Of, um, is it his niece? I think, yeah, maybe, yeah it is, yeah, 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 he's yeah. Kind of driving around when and she's talking, she's talking about her film project, yeah. And um, I kind of screen grabbed a load of stuff that I use in teaching now, yeah, 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 in terms of some of the stuff she's talking about filmmaking and some of the stuff he's saying about filmmaking, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just there's. It's fun, you know, and it's interesting and it's engaging. And he is a filmmaker, you know, he's not he's not a polemicist who's sat there in Iran kind of on these conditions telling everyone how bad the world is. He's, He is exploring humanity in all of its shades in the way that he has access to at any given time, which is really exciting. Yeah, yeah look brilliant. forward to catching that at some point. And in a, in a quite a big gear change, yeah. <laughs> what's your next film? Well, um, let's keep it on theme in terms of the gear change but let's talk about films about filmmaking Um, Dolomite is my name absolutely um, the Craig Brewer film about Rudy Ray Moore uh, who played Dolomite uh, who created this character called Dolomite um, first as a stand-up then as a kind of movie star and I think if I if I was if push came to shove and I had a favourite movie this year it might be this um, you know,
0: and I kind of want to say, I kind of want to say it's my favorite movie, just from the act of it's favorite in terms of enjoy the one that you enjoyed the most, would you say, or favorite as in the best movie? Well, yeah. no, I mean, again, what is the what best? is the best? Yeah. Know,
1: but, but, I, but but I do think that yeah, it's de- I think it's definitely the movie I enjoyed the most. It's the one that spoke to my taste and sensibility the most. But also, I think it's a really really great movie. I think it's really well written. I think the performances are excellent. I think it looks great. Um, I think it's funny. And I think that it's it's got a theme that it's trying to extol. And I think it does it really well. I think it's just, yeah, I just think it's great. Um, not much of a critique there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've spent a lot of time this year on the the Nicholas Wining reference site because I'm writing some pieces about it. This by NWR, which is his archive project where he's kind of putting these films out into the world for free that are from the furthest reaches of the cult and experimental and underground propaganda punk you name it all these kind of corners of the world he's he's put this stuff out and his site is a celebration of it um, with amazing writing and kind of contextual work that goes alongside it but what it's reminded me of watching all these films which a lot of them are released via movie um, and then, kind of, they go online uh, for free with all these great, great pieces around them. Is that great filmmaking is found everywhere, and that, that people want to make good movies most of the time, and that even in the worst films, quote unquote worst films, kind of films with terrible acting, films with terrible stories, really problematic exploitation movies, there are moments where you know that the person behind the camera, or the person on the sound, or the person in the edit room, wants to be a filmmaker and is able to do something really special and what was really exciting about dolomite was a reminder of like what that independent like let's just get together and make something for the the joy of making it and because we can and because we think that there's a need for this thing all these kind of things which we believe in despite digital and technological revolution are still increasingly hard to actually access because of the gatekeepers of yeah. how things are seen not the how things are made but certainly how things are seen and who talks about what this was a film which kind of just reminded me of the all of that stuff. You know, it felt I mean obviously it was written by the same people as Ed Wood and it kind of took me back to when I saw Ed Wood and was like, yeah, this is this is great. And, you know, the idea of bad and good doesn't always matter, you know, because maybe it's intentionality, maybe it's watching something and feeling like the people are making it are trying to make something great even though they haven't got necessarily the quote-unquote talent or resources. They're in it because they want to tell a good story. They want to do something. They want to do something important and that's what drives the project and that's what drove the film and it's what drove Rudy Ray Moore's kind of foray into cinema. And it was really inspiring to see Eddie Murphy back doing something great in this shape of this character who never, as a person, never gave in and never got to 40 and was like, nah, I'll sack it in, you know, yeah, it was, yeah. you know, and whether what he did was of the same critical level as Richard Pryor or doesn't matter because no. he just kept at it and he found a way to make it work and he found a way to make a living, he found his niche and he did bring kind of happiness to people in, with, with what he did. And there was just so much that was really, I found inspiring, you know, I found yeah, it really yeah, inspiring, yeah. you know, like, okay, how you do something is what really matters, and who you do it with as well yeah, was a yeah, big yeah. thing of it, you know. Like he didn't as a as a as a character he didn't go out and find all these people that everyone told him he should work with. You know, I hate that stuff. Or you should go. You know, like yeah, no, yeah, these yeah. are my friends. These you will do this now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then okay, this this guy will write it, and then he'll bring in these film students. You know, mm-hmm. the von Sternbergs, which I know you in a big, oh, you know, my God. and they're just film students, but they want to be filmmaker. You yeah. know, like, all of this stuff is like okay, this is this is who we've got access to, and this is
0: who we know, and there was yeah I just thought it was great 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 movie I totally concur with that it, I didn't expect it I sat down put it on and I it reminded me of the the um, comedy episode that we had where we were discussing comedy and like it's very rare for me to to now really get into an out and out comedy very unusual it's more there's a comedy performance in a another genre but I have to say, I haven't laughed at a film from beginning to end as much as this. I can't remember when, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely hilarious. Eddie Murphy, just on brilliant form. Um, the 20 minutes when the film students do come in and, you know, because the whole race, race element to that as well, it's like, you know, why are we letting these white boys in and stuff like that? It says, yeah, because they can, they, you know, we need to get the, the damn thing made and they're going to do it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then when the guy comes in and introduces himself as Nick von Sternberg, it just kind of, kind of like my entire career of teaching film students. You know, the self-regarding film student who could be named Nick von Sternberg. is just, you know, it killed me. It really did. And then, you know, not, not just Eddie Murphy, but Wesley Snipes is brilliant in this. Mm-hmm. An actor who is, is is somebody who I think is eminently watchable. You know what I mean? It's like you, you think of somebody who... We were just talking before we started about... Gene Hackman has been someone who elevates something, and maybe you wouldn't say that of Wesley Snipes. You know, if you without actually, oh yeah, he's in that, and he's in that. I mean, the other day we watched Blade mm-hmm. because B had never seen it. I said, and and and, and I said, have you seen Blade? And she said, well, you like superhero movies? I said, this is great. I said, I've never thought of. She said, I've never thought of watching it because I thought it would just be some stupid, kitschy sort of throwaway mm-hmm. thing that was not to be taken seriously. I said. That is a really good film. I'm telling you, you know the first one. Yeah, yeah. And we we sat down. And it was just like this is great. This is so good, and he's great in it. So so to see him sort of, you know, and it's an acting role as well. It's not just uh, you know, I'm going to do Wesley Sams. He's actually yeah, yeah. doing a role in it. It's great. and um, yeah. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, just do yourself a favor and and, yeah, and sit down and yeah. and watch it on Netflix. You know, yeah. He, Wesley
1: Snipes has made my favorite line, which yeah. is they're shooting the film and shooting the fight scene. Dolomite's like beating these guys up, and it's so bad. And yeah, Von Sterberg says to him, Susun, like, could we should we go again? And there's this big pause, and he says something like, I see no reason why we should ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Take one marker, action, hold it, Dolomite.
0: What do you want? FBI, what do you want, man? Where's your warrant at? This badge is my warrant. Open up the trunk. It ain't mine. I don't know how I got
1: in there. You're going to jail for a long time. You're gonna have to take me. (coughs) Cut.
0: Cut cut. Is there any angle that you could shoot this where it looks like he's actually kicking him? There is no such angle.
1: Ruin it. God damn it. Action! Woo-hoo-hoo. Cut!
0: How was that? No reason to do it again. Was he good at Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, Wesley Snipes is, is great, isn't it. So yeah. Yep. Okay, so in another gear change, my next film that I, I want to talk about is Burning. So this is the Lee Chan Dong movie that has got quite a lot of critical attention, I think. A lot of people have, have talked about this being, you know, up there as their films of the year. And, you know, whenever we do these. These sort of rundowns, or whenever you're talking about a film, it's how much synopsis you want to give, and it's almost kind of like it's very difficult to sort of map out what this film is about. I mean, nominally it's about a sort of aspiring novelist who randomly runs into an old school friend. So it's a it's a male aspiring novelist and runs into this uh, girl who is a former classmate who doesn't he doesn't really recognise at first, but they start hanging out together, and clearly he sort of begins to fall in love with her, and. And then she's going off on this trip, trip. He asks her to look after his cat, feed his cat, uh, feed her cat while yeah. she's away, which he does, but he never sees the cat. But the food disappears. So straight away, there's these elements of disappearance or things about that idea of, of presence and not being present. Or, and, but she returns um, and he goes to pick her up at the airport. She turns up with this guy called Ben, who's this very sort of cocky, self-assured, rich guy, but very sort of um, cool and, and doesn't give anything away doesn't sort of impose a personality he's just very aloof let's say and they hang out together for a, a while but they're clearly a sort of shift in the power dynamic and then a plot moment happens which I'm not going to give away because it's kind of like central and that kind of shifts the film entirely and, and it turns into this kind of psychological mystery that has got a goal element to it in that what's what's happened and how's it gonna be resolved. But it it much more becomes about the the characters' internal understandings of themselves, but also where is reality? And that also becomes a comment on the young people's generally relationship to the world and how much of are they obsessed with kind of surface and money and You know, this guy, Ben, he lives in this fantastic apartment and he drives around in a Porsche, but he's kind of vacuous, there's nothing else to him. And the burning of of the title is he tells this story about he likes to, one of the things he likes to do is burn these greenhouses. And he goes into this long sort of philosophical aside about what he does and why he does this. And there's a clear kind of allusion to environmentalism and stuff like that. You know, he's burning greenhouses, but it's almost this kind of like, it goes beyond apathy it's like I'm gonna destroy this and I because I can there's no sort of explanation of it beyond that you know so it's it becomes a sort of really enigmatic tension building like a piece of string that gets pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled and you know that the snap gonna happen it, and it really does but it doesn't sort of solve anything it's a film that I kind of haven't stopped thinking about and I can't articulate to you why <laughs>
1: Was the feeling of watching Mm. that was the most the most powerful aspect of it? I found it I found it weirdly kind of akin to Charlie Kaufman's adaptation. I know Mm. it's kind of based on a Murakami story, but this sense of being with like again the writer and then the way that you're really unsure as the as as the film progresses. What is this this character and what is his desire and kind of essentially ambition to craft a narrative out of what's happened. So what is real and what is not, what is subjective. And the way the film really makes it unclear, you know, I mean, adaptation makes it very clear towards the end what's happened, but it it is that kind of drifting into a space of the character wants, wants a story, wants to create something out of these fragments of meetings and, and what, yeah, what's great about the Ben character is he's is just a cipher. He's yeah, yeah, just yeah, a yeah. kind of really superficial, which allows the other character to kind of project everything onto him. Yeah, yeah And yeah. we as an audience go with that, but we have no reliability as to no. what, because we are right inside the main
0: character's head. And he does that thing, doesn't he, where there's two, there's two elements to him where that really comes home, where he has these fantastic parties and he kind of turns around and sort of yawns. I mean, <laughs> and and the and the the writer kind of catches him doing it a couple of times. And then also both of their relationship to Shin, who is the, the female character, and his he can't fathom that she likes Ben when he doesn't give a clearly doesn't care. And he's madly in love with her. And he, you know, it's that that sort of sense of how can that be? How do you process that that, that psychologically? Yeah. He can't fathom that, and he's trying to work that out, but there is no answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. There Why isn't. somebody likes that yeah, person yeah. more than more than you? You know. And it, and I think
1: a lot of the critique of the film that I sort of saw on around was, you know, was that it feels like a very twenty nineteen masculinity yeah. in crisis kind of film, and it is. You yeah, know, yeah, that yeah, the female yeah. character is there to to understand, particularly the main character's kind of anxieties about masculinity and, you know, what what Ben represents as masculinity mm. and all that kind of stuff. and, and that But it's not of, promoting that, though, is it? You no, know no, what no, I mean? No. That's the thing. No, it's it, not you know. promoting... I think it was just... Of, a, I it, understand, yeah. Because you it, mean, we're yeah. talking about Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, of course. It was lumped into, oh, it's another film, film about that, this. Man. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. Is, it is a really interesting yeah. film. Around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, it's lumped in a load of... with 100 films that aren't interesting. Yeah. So I could see that in terms of the construction of this narrative where with this character trying to figure all that out. But really, how interested is the character even figure, you know, what, you know, that it's so ambiguous towards Mm. the end in terms of the the motive for for the pursuit of 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 what the main character goes on, which is, yeah. I just and it is and it does build and build and build in the way that yeah, quote unquote slow cinema does. You know, Mm. it gives you the space to have a payoff which is so Overwhelming in terms of its its accumulative power. Mm. And it definitely does that. Yeah. Great. So, next for you, uh, I guess a similar film in terms of its approach to creating a, a kind of atmosphere that builds to accumulative power, which is uh, Alice Raw Walker's Happy as Lazaro, which I absolutely adore that film. Yeah. Just, again, I think. I think I wrote about this or we talked about it on the podcast when I saw it, which was it really similar to burning. It kind of, it made me, it kind of, it challenged me to not think about it. The way it was constructed, particularly in that first kind of hour or so was like telling me, you know, that this is, this is to be felt. This is not to be thought about. Yes, there's politics. Yes, there's subtext. Yes, there's all, but don't try and think about it. Just try and, Try and get in the space of where this film is operating, and let it kind of hit you. And it really, really did. And a lot of that was through the perform the main performance of the, the character, the actor who plays Lazaro, which is a pure cipher of yeah, yeah, the yeah, world yeah. around. You know, like soaks up everybody's behavior, everybody's without any judgment, without. And just yeah, kind of carries it's an
0: amazing kind of yeah. presence in that film where everything is revolving around.
1: Yeah and the ability to do that. And again, we were talking, you were talking about um, uh, Atlantics and, you know, he is a non-professional, you know, I think maybe a first, first role and just magnetic presence where everything is felt through this character. And the world is a, is a chaotic world around them. And they just kind of drift through in this kind of naive way. Mm. Um, Not in a negative sense, but in that, I just, I I found it an incredibly moving film uh, in terms of, what What you could feel about this character and how this character was treated in in two contexts? So the film again, very similarly shifts. So you know you don't know when the the first half of the film is set. It's very unclear. yeah, and then something happens to the the world of the film where the, the lazaro and and this kind of community that he's part of are are living, where it becomes clear that they have been kept as essentially slaves in this um, farming community and made to work for nothing. Um, and then that is kind of exploded and and they, and they leave, but, but Lazaro doesn't leave with them. Um, and then the second half is him reunited with those people, but it's the time, time has passed. They yeah. have aged things. Society has moved on. They've moved from the country to the city, all these things, but Lazaro is unchanged. Uh, and that's where it kind of takes on this slightly, surreal supernatural yeah. kind of uh, maybe um, biblical well there is the, yeah there is the biblical you know reading of it which i think is is mm. right there as well yeah and then so much of the tension that is kind of unspoken in the first half is actualized in, in in lazaro trying to do what he did before in this other space in a much more active way he becomes more of an agent than he has done in the first um, in, in the first half of him, he's an agent with one character very, very specifically, yeah. which is essentially his downfall. Um, in the second half, he kind of does, he does something which is absolutely logical for that character in that world, but it's a just it's a tragedy. It's an absolute kind of horrible yeah. kind of realization of, of how society has moved on.
0: Tancredi de Luna è padrone degli inviolata.
1: Gli esseri umani sono come bestie, animali. Liberarli vuol dire renderli consci della propria condizione di schiavitù. What's a... What an exercise in tone and what an exercise in kind of making you feel making you feel yeah, you know yeah, I yeah, just yeah. I was absolutely kind of devastated by the end of yeah. it um, and again wasn't really sure why because the plot had happened and it had been pretty standard, very little happens um but the, i i'd felt I felt shifted you yeah, know yeah, through yeah. the experience of it, um, yeah, I thought it was absolutely right, yeah,
0: both burning I think and and happy as Lazaro formally just put me in mind of Antonioni. I think they're kind of of that ilk where there, there is a sort of meandering element to time and space and the cause and effect are put... They're not there in in the way that the mainstream films are often structured or mostly structured. Um, but I think the, the, the thing that really hit me about this film, apart from just the interest of how that played out in the second half, was how this film is absolutely of the moment in the sense of... The character of lazaro some it's about innocence and it's about where innocence sits in a in a world that doesn't care about that anymore and and non-judgmental innocence and it's different let's say from something like you know completely different obviously in the film from something like say forrest gump where actually there's a critique of that film that that is kind of like yeah you don't have to be a, a smart person to to succeed. But this is kind of like more on an elemental level that, that innocence in its broadest understanding, like just being just being sincere and having good faith yeah. is not something that is lauded, taken seriously. You know, you are just a chump if you are sincere or you are innocent or you, you take people at their word and that's where you start from. No, you know, if you look at the online social media world, you have to immediately take someone as having an agenda for what they say. And usually maybe they do have one, but but the problem is if you do that, nobody can have a conversation because there can be no greed p- parameters of mm. truth. And I think the whole film is playing around with that that idea in a way that's not, obviously not pointing towards social media, but is this sort of critique of, of the way that we are right now, and and yeah, it's just a, it's an incredible piece of work.
1: Yeah, I think it's yeah the op, yeah the operating principle is is that it's he's non-judgmental in in everything. Yeah, you know he's yeah he he sees the good in in people and in every situation, which is, you know, most obviously yeah. kind of crystallized in social media. But you know, coming into London, you see it, you see that sense of how people operate in the world. And how people assume a body position based around, you know, and, and how the world is very much about assuming that everyone is antagonistic yeah. or in any in any sense. And we just, all adopt it as a yeah. defensive posture yeah. a lot of the time. And that's, you know, and that's that's what's really striking about this film is how this character does not do that. Um, never does that. No. Like, And I think that is what's so powerful about it. You know, I don't think it's a spoiler. You know, this is uh, it's a character who is unchanged, in terms of how they relate to and engage with the world and the tragedy is that they have no place in the world because they have to change yeah or as as the film kind of suggests they are they are not for this world and it is yeah it is, it is it's a brilliant movie
0: awesome um, so we'll move on to we got Two more, you've got one more That's to right, go. Yeah. So we're nearly there. Hang in with us, uh, listeners. Um so my penultimate film is Claire Denise High Life, which probably was my most engrossing film experience, I think. It was the it was the film that I was in from the start, and I, I was never let go of. It, a similar experience to last year's You Were Never Really Here, where it just punched to the gut, to the brain, you know, to the psychology the most completely immersive cinematic experience from, a, from an aesthetic, from a philosophical, from an intellectual perspective. It's a Tarkovsky, Kubrick-esque space thriller, maybe? Psychological drama, whatever you want to call it. And with Robert Pattinson and the lead is this kind of father character, but ostensibly he's on this spaceship, which is a prison or has been a prison at some point, but you don't know whether the ship has been lost and what the the aim or the goal is has been is kind of blurred now. I think, yeah. Um, is ostensibly they're they're going to harvest energy from black holes. He, but yes, but it's they've got Juliette Benoche on this ship yeah. as a sort of scientist that, who is not in charge, so maybe is also a prisoner in some way. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, because because you find out what he what she does. Yeah, she does. yeah, that's right. Um, and and she sort of is is experimenting isn't she so she's kind of like this I mean I've written down here she's Juliet Juliet Binoche plays a satanic eugenicist who fucks a lifestyle robotic dildo I kind of think to myself well if that was the tagline I would definitely watch this movie do you know what I mean I know that sounds kind of you know don't want to posit myself as too weird but it's a self-enclosed film in terms of the the space itself so it's in this spaceship we're never outside of that um but it's almost kind of like the the spaceship itself could be a metaphor for the human body mm. you know they're going down these corridors which are like these padded cells which again it does hit the kind of sci-fi buttons aesthetically but it could be the interior of a you know the gestating monster or something like that you know and, and and that relates to kind of like alien i think in many ways the sort of allusions to that aesthetically and this interior ecosystem could also be a psychological interior, so it plays around with like notions of logic and morality and and reality, open to all all these questions around around that. Um, it's absolutely amazing to look at. So you get these cold clinical interiors. It's very it's very sort of institutionalised, but then it's playing around with ideas of, of of sexuality in really extreme extreme kinds of ways. Again, another non-linear film, so told in flashback, so you don't know. It's an unreliable narration in that sense about what has happened previously to get you to this point, which again is a very much a, a trope of, the, of these sort of hard sci-fi movies. What happened is sort of flashback to, and then that seems to have informed where we are now. Since we left the solar system, Radio silence. I'll
1: hold up. Almost all of us were still alive. We were scum.
0: Trash. A refuse that didn't fit into the system. Until someone had the bright idea of
1: recycling us. of science
0: why do you keep taking this perm? i'll never have kids and it has this real sort of nihilism to it so it it is kind of hard you know i can imagine people kind of like being god this is absolutely bleak you know there's this constant sort of allusion to the recycling of material whether and, and you know it's human waste being recycled in order to survive so again you know you get this you get this sense that that earth is dying and we're being sent out to to harvest energy but also recreate or repopulate humanity which again is a sort of very sci-fi trope and again it's psychological because everybody is sort of paying for sins of the past but that is individualized to the characters all the characters are paying for these sins but are they collectively paying for the sin of humanity in a broadest sense so you know, it's absolutely it, it, it's absolutely brilliant in its enigmatic nature, and not really nailing any kind of very specific narrative cards to the the mast. And you can project onto it so many things. But at, at the end of the day, it's just an exhilarating piece of piece of cinema in a way that that kind of reminded me a little bit of Ad Astra, but it's so different to that. You know, it's more Cronenberg, I think. Than sort of Kubrick in many ways, but another film that I struggled to talk about because I just I just was in it and I felt it as much as anything else.
1: Yeah, which we talked about a lot when we did our Claire Denis yeah. episode. You know, I yeah. think it it made me think of Ad Astra in the way that two filmmakers working in a brand new space, but mm. you can clearly see their preoccupations absolutely transposed onto this new genre you know yeah. like it doesn't really matter where they work they're going to do they're going to essentially going to make the same film um yeah I, I thought high life i think it's extraordinary and it is yeah kind of self-contained in its ideas and they feel. you yeah, there's the yeah, the feeling of watching the film is is by turns kind of yeah enthralling you know the the horrifying sort of, horrifying yeah, 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 yeah. horrifying in there's a there's a particular sequence which is horrifying on a kind of visceral physical, yeah, 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 but, yeah. but also the the central ideas are horrifying, yeah. you know, and you have to sit with them because there's nowhere to go, you know. She's putting you in this space of reckoning with yeah the what what has happened to these people yeah. in terms of being sent off on a suicide mission to to harvest energy for a dying planet, um, but then also. What they've done and what has happened since, you know, so Benoist's character and what she does to them, which is essentially yeah, yeah. In harvest firm and yeah, yeah, inseminate yeah. the women to create life on the thing, and the way she goes about that, and then what that kind of changing of the laws of morality of the plane of the of the ship means for everybody's kind of free reign to reposition their own morale It's just it's yeah, so yeah, clever. Yeah. But then it's also this, you know, there's some really funny moments, particularly you know towards the end when they do leave the ship, where they go to that other ship. Mm. where it's just dogs yeah 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 it's
0: yeah. just like, like kind of like yeah 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 what it is...
1: reminds you like yeah yeah you're, you're, you're kind of re- you know which I think is kind of Denise does a lot which is you're invested in this really kind of high intellectual idea and the realization is that the people who came up with this stuff are kind of idiots or yeah you know, yeah, yeah. Like she does it great in trouble every day with the scientists but here as well it's like they just send a load of dogs out into space and then they're just still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, yeah, yeah. The dogs are fine. Oh, yeah. The dogs fine. You know, and then like you take the dogs with us. You know, it's it's kind of punctured, and then yeah, and right. also, Robin Pattinson's relationship with Willow, the the the, the, the daughter, yeah, um, who is kind of born on the ship, uh, who only knows the ship, and that relationship. There's some really tender. Yeah, moments, yeah there is. Sp- that's where we spend most of the present time, which is, in terms of the the, the story, which you know. So, again, yeah, I just one of our master filmmakers yeah. really working at just on a completely different plane to anyone else, you know, like you look at the end of the year awards, you know, and I think high life's on quite a few kind of critics lists that certainly high up on film comment. I think it was quite hindsight and sound, but this idea that oh, women aren't making films at that level. And I know, I know it's an argument that we, we kind of go over again, but you do think like this is a film for adults, which is incredibly intellectual, but also like you say, stunning to look at it's sci-fi movie with Robert Pattinson you know, which recalls Silent Running as well. Yeah, kind of, You know, this kind of cultivation of of ecology within that space. Um, There are really thrilling scenes, like, of, yeah, kind of space action. Um, There's that beautiful moment where he jettisons all the bodies, you know, like, when you were talking earlier about the kind of the body in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, High Life does that. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. And it's just like, why... You realize how ridiculous awards yeah. are because how is this film not talked about as one of the just one of the greatest things that cinema's had in the last five yeah. years? It makes no sense because it's an absolute stone cold masterpiece.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to go off on one of on awards, but I mean, just putting the gender thing to one side for a second because I agree with all of that, but just the fact of the like the Golden Globes list, you could have written that on the back of a fag packet in five minutes, it's kind of like. Because you just want to hang out with these stars, and yeah. Mm. There's films on there that are good. That's fine, but yeah, it, it's why you know. Yeah, I hate awards even even more than I hate lists. Mm. So uh, it's funny how there's certain scenes in other movies, like say for example, the dogs bit is done in such a smart, interesting way, in a different way to say the Ad Astra moment with the monkey, which is a spectacle moment, which works mm. in and of itself, and also very different to say in Prometheus the moment where. Numero Pass basically has that abortion in the yeah. in the machine, which is an amazing scene in and of itself, but just sticks out so much in it in a rest of a movie, which is pretty, you know, mediocre. Let, let's say all of these things are, are woven together by a filmmaker who's able to sort of use fantastically mesmerizing visual moments in space, interwoven into a in, into a kind of an overarching thematic because I don't want to say a, a you know a narrative that goes from here here to there, but they feel earned yeah. in ways that other films kind of like oh now we're good just going to have our action moment yeah you know yeah it's definitely yeah a, a coherent piece by a filmmaker in a different way
1: um, yeah loved it
0: great and we've arrived at our final two films so uh, what do you want to go for as your final pick for the year
1: well my final pick for the year is. Uh, Christian Petzold's Transit which you saw the other day which I'm really excited to hear what you thought of it Um, yeah I I love this movie so much I I guess it kind of comes back to a lot of things that we're talking about in terms of our list particularly you know Atlantics and, and, and Burning which is you know how how filmmakers are using genre now you know, particularly non-American filmmakers. I'm listening to the Decades project on Film Comment, and one of the most interesting things is this realization. Actually, like you know, film might not be the center. Of, we've talked about that. You know, film is not the center of the culture anymore. But American film is in this decade, I think, is not the central in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of where real exciting quote-unquote commercial mainstream genre filmmaking can be found. High Life is a great example of that. Burning is a great example of that. This kind of mystery movie and how filmmakers are using really long-held conventions and are kind of turning them on their head and not caring about how they should be used and and using them in really interesting ways. And Petzold's film, which is about a a man who kind of assumes an identity um, in order to kind of gain passage from Marseille um, in World War Two, um, although the film is set now, is it, is just I just absolutely loved it. I thought it was gripping in turn as a as a kind of narrative of someone trying to get out of a place which is being surrounded by ostensibly Nazis, but in this are kind of, you know, just armed militia police um, in the, in the port town and the kind of the encroaching kind of noose of being found out um, and trying, and and that kind of that ticking clock of need to get on, need to get on all the papers to get on the boat, to get away, to get out of the situation. Um, I thought it was fascinating that it's, it's the story of a German. So it's a story of someone at the kind of the start of the war trying to flee and is not a sympathetic sympathetic German so there's no place for him in the in the the Reich so again a different kind of story than you, you normally kind of see particularly that kind of travels the world um amazing central performance from I can't remember the actor's name but just yeah I just thought like I just I was it was probably the one of the most entertaining films I've seen this year you know a great kind of central love story tragic love story at the, at the heart of it. You know, I love a good espionage movie where, you know, all the pieces have to be lined up. And this is someone trying to literally going from embassy to embassy, trying to get all the right things, which could be really dull. But the way everything was put together was just kind of mesmerizing. And it, it felt fresh. It felt like I was seeing something again that I hadn't seen before. Mm. And a lot of it was just this simple, which looked like a simple decision to set a wartime resistance story, World War II resistance story right now and what that did to the politics of the, the, the of the now without being explicitly about yeah. refugees or yeah, immigration yeah, yeah. or kind of the, the, the politics of, of, of France or the politics of the West or any, it was all just absolutely there in that decision to set a World, a World War II story now. And I thought it was brilliant. Um, and yeah, everything just kind of aligned into what was I thought was a really exciting movie. Am Morgen würde er die Sachen des Dichters im mexikanischen Konsulat abgeben und vielleicht einen Finderlohn erhalten.
0: Und dann. Irgendwas wird sich auftun. Die beiden Visa, eine Geldanweisung. Das muss er missverstehen. Es gibt keine direkte Verbindung nach Mexiko. Sie brauchen Transit. Und da sah er sie: Der schwarzer, eleganter Mantel, die feinen Schuhe, der müde Gang. Er hat mich
1: vergessen. Ja. Mein Mann.
0: Er sagte, er hätte durch die Scheibe geschaut und dann hätte sie aufgeschaut, so als hätte sie gewusst, dass er dort steht.
1: Sie hatten die Lager schon gefüllt und die Deportationen begannen. Jetzt drückten
0: sie auf Marseille vor. Ich werde mich um dich kümmern. Brilliant. Um, what did you like, it? This is an interesting one for me because... You saw this at <laughs> cinema, didn't you? Yeah. I watched this at home, and I think that had a big impact on its effect. Yeah. And the reason I think that was because after about 15 minutes, I googled what was going on. Um, and I think that the effect of that was, oh, I kind of know what the filmmaker's trying to do now. I can get on with the movie. Yeah, I think that the the joy of this movie, I think, if you were in the cinema, is that you are spending a lot of time processing what the worldview, what the world is. Yeah, and,
1: and the incongru- it. Incongruity I
0: think, yeah, the incongruity of it. of it, and the fact that actually it shouldn't be resolved. Really, mm. you know, because is it at the beginning? What is it? The end of the war? Is it? someone who's gone back in time even, Pat? Is it, you know what I mean? Is it going to be sort of some weird sort of time shift thing that, that's going to happen? Um, and then also the the way that that feeds into the voiceover, which is absolutely key to understanding the, the unreliability of the narration and therefore the unreliability of anything that's going on. And I think that my process of wanting to find out and being frustrated and being at home meant that I did that and then didn't get the full effect of what the what the director is asking you the work the director is actually asking you to do right and the other problem I, I had which is not a problem with the film was that you rated it. And then I heard a couple of other people say that this was their best of the year. And I don't think it came up to those mm. high expectations because of that. And I think also to, it was partly to do with the fact that the love story was a sort of an alienated love story in a way. You don't know really if it's a love story or, or whether people are just acting to, I mean, I think that the, the there's one initial character who is madly in love and doesn't leave when he has the opportunity to, and then, again, it's the, the, the woman at the centre of this. You don't know where her loyalties lie. I, d- I don't think ever. And, that again, that's p- part of this unreliable narrator because I think one of the, the sort of master strokes is there's voiceover describing things that are going wrong and it's incorrect. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, vo- the, the sort of vo- voiceover narration is saying, this happened, this happened, and you're literally looking on screen and saying, no, that's not right. is it, You know what I mean? And obviously that's clearly deliberate. Um and I think it does allude to a lot of to films of the. I mean, Casablanca is a big film that it alludes to. You know what I mean? In, 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 just simply in terms of what, what is happening, they're tr- they're held at a seaport and they're trying to escape to the Americas, basically. And it's a trif not trifecta. It's a uh, not a m- menage a trois either, but it's a you know it's three people in a yeah, relationship. Yeah, yeah. There is a word for them, which I'm struggling to find now. Um, Love triangle. It is a love triangle, but it, there's another word I'm thinking of, but I can't think of it. Well, it's an um, interesting
1: love triangle because he, he assumes the identity of the woman's husband mm. without the woman knowing that he has assumed his identity. Yeah, 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 so yeah. he's basically charged with getting the husband to the place. Yeah. yeah the husband yeah. dies. On the way, so never Rise He takes takes the identity of that. So she's kind of leaving with someone else. So yep. she says she loves, but does she love him when she's trying to get passage? Yeah. And then it kind of flips back and forward. And yeah, the, the person that she's loving clearly loves her. And it's just, and then he helps or tries to help this other family. Oh no, it's no, it's not. It's not his husband. It's the, It's um. It's the the one that he was going yeah, to travel yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah that he was supposed to travel with. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, it just yeah. There's a, there's a lot going on. Yeah, um, and I definitely
0: think that being locked in with it
1: definitely
0: yeah yeah and i think also it's what's really interesting as well is that there is this under like completely aside from him trying to escape these are all white europeans aren't they but there's this he does encounter the film sort of encounters a whole class of immigrants non-white immigrants who clearly are in a completely different situation but they're not obviously they're not focused on but it, the film cleverly sort of reminds you of that. I mean, again, I can imagine that people will criticise, why are they not more front and centre? But actually, the smartness is, is oh, but we're focusing on these white characters yeah, who want to escape. Yeah. But there's a whole other layer of, yeah. you know, problems going on here for the, for this group, yeah. you know, which feeds um,
1: into the the German
0: situation. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah also yeah. features in, feeds into the the kind of the current situation. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. And so it became sensibly, it became a really interesting technical film for me mm. rather than being something that I was sort of submerged in but you know I, I'm definitely of the opinion that I think it would have worked if you were locked in yeah 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 yeah, it, it, yeah. interesting cool yeah
1: alright so okay. get
0: down to your last one so my final film is Capernaum Nadine Lebecki's, uh Lebanese drama um, which is a film that that I think he's a, just an epic triumph. I mean, it's sort of almost Dickensian in both its content and its scope. So it stars uh, this, again, non-professional actor and actually a Syrian uh, refugee himself called Zayn Al-Rafia, al-Rafia, I think. Um, so there's an immediate sort of autobiographical allusion to the story. So he's in the, set in the sort of streets, labyrinthine streets of Lebanon, and... Um, and we start where Zane is basically accused or imprisoned for for um, stabbing somebody. And he's sentenced to this five-year prison sentence because of this. And it's told in flashback um, to to bring us to how, how to, how we got to this point. And he is, Zane is this absolutely, he's called Zane. That's his character name in, in the film as well. You know, a, a real sort of, you know, tear away. Apps are swearing every other every other word in his sentence is is swearing, you know. And you get this sort of sense, of, oh my god, here is this really problematic kid, you know what I mean? And We're we're taken back to his uh, family life. Oh, but before that, we, we we learn he's actually suing his parents, and there's this sort of amazing moment where he says, "Why are you suing your parents?" The the court asks him, and we don't know how he's he's got to this point of suing his parents, but he's in the courtroom and said, "I'm suing them because I was born or their irresponsibility in having me." He's really articulate as well, you know what I mean? He's sort of articulate beyond his years, and we're taken back to him and we see this. You know what you would call in the West kind of neglect for his parents, but it's you know there's the sort of physical and psychological abuse of him and his sisters, who, you know one of the sisters and and previous sisters who we don't see, you know get it worse in in various ways, you know you can imagine. And he ends up running away with one of his sisters and ends up on the on the streets. Dealing with the kind of bullies and the you know the the merchants and he's very entrepreneurial in a sense. So that's why it's got this Dickensian element. It's a little bit like you know Oliver Twist or or Great Expectations in 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 certain ways, in terms of the the sort of storytelling. I think, but or, you know, like, like I say, the sort of content as well. In this, in his sort of journey, he meets this Ethiopian migrant who is working as a cleaner, and she she kind of takes him in and and sort of looks after him and she 's got a little baby herself and and she 's soon arrested though because she hasn't got the right papers and he ends up he winds up back on the street with this baby in tow, you know and he's twelve years old and it's this absolutely amazing depiction of poverty and cruelty but with a, a, a sort of vibrancy and life to it, and you know a real honesty and purity to the direction that never it never falls into this poverty porn aesthetic, which you might sort of accuse something like City of God of doing, or you know even worse Slumdog Millionaire, which I think is a film that is so problematic now. If you look back at it, it hasn't aged well. That film at all. Um, yeah, it's not bleak. It, there is a humour to it, and it's not stereotypical. I don't think anybody is a is just a you know turns up to fill a role that the main character is, is sort of feeding off or or reacting off. You know, it's clear in the dimensions of the impact of war, poverty, in, institutionalised corruption has on children. Is feeding into everything that's going on globally in the world right now and telling a brilliantly well-told story with an um, amazing performance, a gritty, realist, amazing sorry, sort of strength and, and human endurance by this kid. At the center of it you know again for the with a film that got a lot of plaudits earlier on in the year but to me has been forgotten a little bit towards the end of the year which is why i sort of really wanted to talk about it <laughs>
1: شو رايك؟ صار صوني انا شفت اره بلا سبايدر مان Yeah, because I think it was can last year, wasn't it? So yeah, exactly. Really, like they say it's one of those films taking a long time coming, so it's nice to hear. Nice to hear you talk. I haven't seen it, so yeah. I have no. No frame reference. Yeah. Um, I'm not even going to pretend. I'm not going to be a man and pretend. <laughs> I know all about it. But uh,
0: one to look forward to, I think, for you, that you could kind of,
1: you know... Looking forward to it is probably a stretch based on your description of it. Yeah. Um, no, it, it is on my list, and I see it, I see it's just come online right. um, on one of the streaming platforms that yeah, I yeah, subscribe yeah. to. So I have added it to my list. Um, and it is a filmmaker that I know... I think I've, I've seen a couple of her films. I've definitely seen Caramel, which I really liked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I am... Um, and it, it's a film that... I know it has struck a lot of people that I know have seen it i um, have got sort of friends who had a similar response to you really so it has been on the on the simmering
0: yeah on the on the and it is it is melodramatic as well so you know it, it goes beyond that kind of thing of just being sort of totally I want to be totally restrained here in my realist no it's somebody who is trying to make a film yeah, yeah. you know in in the in the grand sense of that yeah. of, of that word. So I think that
1: yeah that that's interesting you call it a melodrama because I think a lot of the a lot of the criticism about it was it that, that it was kind of over over the top and stuff and it's like yeah, but yeah, if, yeah if if there's a genre and a form that's driving that approach which is maybe operatic maybe yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of heightened yeah. like you say kind of epic then as long as it's in line with 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 that then that's a valid way of doing it yeah so yeah, yeah.
0: yeah but i think that there's a lot of there's a tendency i think that western eyes like la- I think "like" is the wrong word, but seeing that the issues of globalization and migration, particularly from the you know the Arab East mm-hmm. to the West, or or the the implied issues of that the West has contributed to that, I think that there is a sense in which the way that that story should be told is with a almost a sort of documentary clarity yeah. that we're not imparting these sentimental judgments onto it. Where whereas I think this filmmaker is. Is obviously coming from from a, a non Western yeah. background, but is is very much sort of influenced by the West. I think if you know if you listen to her, it's not like she, you know she's sort of a national filmmaker in that in yeah. that yeah. enclosed way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it is a really impressive, really impressive piece of work. Cool, great. So that's it. That's it. We're done. I mean, put, uh, that, that, that's a good t- put the year to bed. That's been two hours. Um Probably a bit longer than that. Now, now I'm looking at the. Uh, hopefully, the uh, Podbean hosting site will be able to uh, accommodate. I'm sure. I'm sure. That I'm sure they won't cut you off just before your big no, final film. No, that's uh, right. Well, we can always split it into into two hours and do it, you know, straight after each other. But that's fine. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Neil, for pleasure. your. Thank you. um Obviously, for your contribution today, but working with you over the year, it's been uh, fantastic. As usual, I mean, I think that that's the other the other thing that I wanted to sort of say in terms of moving on. You know, the, the idea of the collaboration and having this as as my central kind of intellectual and you know cultural space to, to to talk about these things. And you know, I know that you do your you do a lot of writing for online magazines and that and that kind of stuff. And you know, my work sort of sits maybe more. In the sort of academic development side of it, but having this space in the way that we do, I think is just so vital now. It's it's uh, yeah, it's really really gratifying that that it's become what it has.
1: Yeah, I feel the same. Yeah, it definitely sits at the centre of my intellectual life um, in terms of a creative and intellectual output. So yeah, I'm very yeah very yeah. <sighs>
0: Yeah, I feel so. <laughs> Great. And and just to say thank you very much to everyone who has collaborated and contributed. There are so many people, too many to name, who give their time for free. Because I think that that's the one big thing that you know we always sort of talk about. People's time is the value that we that we co-opt a lot of the a lot of the time, and we're so grateful that all of the people who collaborate and contribute do recognise I think that that this is a you know a labour of love yeah more than anything else.
1: Yeah we've had a lot of a lot of people contribute um this year in terms of participating on the on the podcast in different ways more than ever. So yeah that's it's
0: it's really appreciated. And also the final thanks I think to our specifically to Patreon subscribers who do stump up a little bit of cash for us. We will be continuing that. There may be some adjustments, I don't know, we have, me and Neil, maybe we'll discuss that for, for next year. But for those of you who have stumped up our two pa- $2.50 uh, subscription for the, the bonus content, that will continue. We'll try to keep getting out bits and pieces of bonus content. The letters will will continue. You, you'll have one that's dropped very recently for the uh, um, January episode. Um, so thank you very much to our our Patreon subscribers uh, for the continued support. Yep, thank you. So that's it. That's been the year. We will see you. There will be an episode dropping uh, quite soon. There'll probably be a few weeks away now. We uh getting things together for the what will be season 11 of the Cinematologist podcast. But until then, thank you very much for your time and thanks for listening. it's and fight.
1: at night, they are all beautiful,
0: and blazing with light is the widest in